This is the Apocalypse Theater Podcast. Episode 27 The Family Must Fall One. February 2014 The taxi driver slowed on the Inchin Bridge Expressway, protesting against Kashi's insistence that she get out right here. Several cars honked their horns and sped around them as the driver put on the hazard lights and pulled to the right. Kashi dropped 40,000 won, or about 40 American dollars, onto the passenger seat and got out into the rain quickly. The driver sped back into motion. Several cars passed on her left as the rain drenched her shoulders. Kashi had no umbrella, just the leather jacket, t-shirt, jeans, and the Converse tennis shoes she wore. She kept her arms crossed and her hood up. Even still, the rainwater mixed with the bloody cut above her eye. Hands in her pockets, she started walking toward where Cal told her to meet him. Something had gone very wrong on this night, so she was a combination of terrified and angry. He was one of her teachers, her assistant. Her friend. He could explain everything. She had just reached the part of the bridge where the ornamental suspension cables fanned from the central bridge pillars when movement caught her eye. Kashi stopped. She saw Cal making his way toward her along the middle barrier of the bridge. He wore a black turtleneck under his overcoat. His black slacks and boots were drenched. It was a rare moment where few cars were passing, and it was raining so no one seemed to care. The police would definitely care if they saw them. This quick meeting would have to be very quick. They stopped across from one another, Cal against the central barrier, Kashi standing on the sidewalk next to the rail of the bridge. They stood across from one another as the last few cars on the bridge went by. What happened? Kashi demanded. Cal stared at her, a dead expression upon his face. Someone had to take the fall, otherwise Interpol would keep digging. He looked down the road to see a lone car approaching. Why me? She asked. Bad luck? He shrugged with his hands in his pockets. Muna picked a scapegoat at random. You must have been the one he chose, which means the family has closed its door on you. A black genesis rolled past them. So what should I do? Kashi's heart pounded in her chest. There's only one thing left to do, and that's to die, Cal said. He lifted his hand while it was in his coat pocket and... Kashi felt the bullet strike her left shoulder. Pain struck her legs as the icy metal projectile punched her small body into the guardrail. The second bullet hit her opposite shoulder. As if being pushed by an invisible force, Kashi was toppling over the ledge of the bridge. A final bullet glanced off her forehead, ricocheting into the humid night while giving Cal the illusion that his bullet had met its mark. There was a spray of blood from Kashi's face, and then she was gone. Cal heard the distant plunk of a body hitting water. He was satisfied that she was finished. She wouldn't be able to swim with her arms. She would likely bleed out. And all of that was if the headshot and the fall from the bridge didn't kill her. Kashi was truly done. All Cal needed to do was get out of Korea like the rest of the family was doing at that very moment. He crossed the sidewalk part of the bridge and made his way back into the shadows. 2. The Yellow Sea is called such for the golden-yellow silt-laden water that pours in from the major Chinese rivers that empty into the Bohai Sea not far to the northwest. This, along with the many regional sandstorms, give the sea its yellow tint, and is why it is known as the Yellow Sea. 
That and assuming she would be dead soon was all she could think as she hit the water. The pain in her arms was excruciating. She was able to use her legs and kick to the surface. She didn't know the extent of her head injury, but for whatever reason she was still conscious as she sucked in air. Red filled her vision. She fought against the pain in her left shoulder to raise her hand to her forehead. The sensation in her fingers felt a folded piece of flesh an inch across just below her hairline. No bullet hole, however. That was extremely lucky. It must have taken an hour for her to kick to the shore to the west while following Inchin Bridge. Unso Dong was the district where Inchin International Airport was located, about 20 minutes by bridge to the northwest of Inchin. Kashi sopped up the rocks to the barrier wall and climbed over. She began walking toward Nambuk Dong. She kept to the sidewalks, keeping her hands in her pockets and her hood up. She shivered in the February cold, but kept moving. Forty-five minutes later, morning twilight filled the sky over Inchin. Gashi hammered on Nookday's door. She rested her face upon her fist, feeling like she was on the verge of getting frostbite. It took him a long time to answer. When he did, Kashi fell into his arms. I go! He scrambled to carry her inside. He placed her on the floor, looked to see if she had been followed, then closed and locked the door behind him. What happened? He sat next to her and inspected her forehead. Kashi's head lulled back and forth, but Nukde didn't wait for her to respond. He hurried into the bathroom, grabbed his medical kit, and set it on the couch behind him. It was as he was dabbing a cloth of peroxide on her shoulder that she lost consciousness. Hey, Kashi! Someone slapped her face. Hey, wake up! Nukde shook her chin. Kashi lulled back to consciousness, barely able to remember anything that had happened for a few seconds. The bullet had been removed from her shoulder, and the other wounds she'd incurred had been bandaged. Nukde had a backpack on his shoulder, along with a small go-bag prepared for her. Kashi, we have to leave, he said. Our plane departs in three hours. I was able to get Joffrey to get you a ride with me. Kashi's eyes widened. No, 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 I can go by myself. No, you can't. He pointed at the television that had been playing subtly in the background. The news anchor was speaking seriously while her picture was displayed in the box to the right of the screen. The woman spoke of how Che Mei had been a suspect of a spate of murders, which she had, along with the rest of the family the previous evening, one of which had claimed the life of Samsung heir Choi Min Chun, a notable playboy, gambler, and part-time DJ rapper. While Kashi had claimed her live targets the night before, Choi Min Chun wasn't one of hers. That made her think of her final target, how it had been a single phone sitting in an office at the top of an empty office building. It was a complete setup. She had heard police sirens, then the fire alarm went off. If you don't come with me right now, you're screwed, said Nookday. He gave her a pair of slacks, t-shirt, blouse, and hat to wear. Kashi changed, put her black hair into a ponytail, and wore the hat as she carried the go-bag with her out to Nookday's Audi sedan. They drove to Seoul, Kashi keeping her head down under her hat as a line of police vehicles drove past. Nukde was uncomfortably silent all the way to Seoul. They turned right onto Achasan Ro. You know we only have the E-1 employment visas in America? He asked. I think Mona mentioned something about that, Kashi said. Since there is no company and it's bullshit, if you want to stay in America after two years, you'll need to either find a really good company to sponsor you or get married. Nukde pulled onto the driveway of a large flat in Kangnam. Their mutual friend was the younger brother of one of SK Holdings' larger investors. Nukde parked in the garage and turned off the car. 
Why are you helping me? Kashi asked. Nukde pursed his lips, not answering immediately. He looked back at her. It's not right that you were the best of all of us, and because you were picked at random, you were to be sacrificed. The payout was bigger, Kashi said. What? Nukde asked. Choi Chun was on that list, which meant we weren't just taking out undesirables and people with too much debt. We took a massive payout so we could dissolve the family and all retire with millions, at the cost of a single fall guy. Kashi shook her head. The police will never stop looking for me. Is there even a reason to go to America? America is very big. It's easy to disappear if you want to, Nukde said. He put his hand on the door latch and his other on the steering wheel to push himself out. My friend is taking you for an additional 100,000 American dollars. I told him you're my girlfriend. Our payout was 12 million each. It's a small price to give an old friend the chance to start over and award her the retirement she deserves. Just remember who helped you later. I'll pay you back, I promise, Kashi said. He shrugged. Probably not. I plan to disappear myself and so does everyone else. Don't bother holding a grudge. It was nothing personal, I'm sure. It was that last bit that planted the seed in Kashi's mind. She had been concerned for her future until that moment. The two got out and made their way toward the expensive apartment flat. She expected a bullet to the brain at every second, but none came. It was good, but it would be best if they ended her. She noticed a helicopter on the helipad above the estate. Within 45 minutes, they were on it, flying over Seoul with Nukde's friend and the helicopter pilot toward Incheon Airport. Kashi thought it was strange that she had been right by the airport that morning, but had been another world away for how much good it would do her. Flying in, avoiding security barriers, and flying out privately would be the miracle Kashi needed. It was happening. Five hours later, she and Nukde were flying northeast over Russia toward Alaska. It was on the flight that she fell asleep and did not wake up until they landed 16 hours later at a private airstrip near Kansas City, Kansas. 3. Kashi, Nukde woke her up. We're here. Kashi got up and grabbed her bag groggily. She followed Nukde and his contact off the plane. They took a car to the Greyhound station in Kansas City. Nukde's contact bid him farewell and departed with the two standing on the street corner between 11th Street and Forest Avenue. Looks like this is where you and I part ways, Nukde said with a heavy breath. Good luck to you. Kashi grabbed his arm. Muna trusted you more than anyone else. He had you make everyone's passports and visas. There are eight people who either think I'm dead or who would benefit greatly from me being dead. You included. So what? You're here now and no one but me knows it. What more do you want from me? Nukde asked. I need to know their names and where they're going to be, all of them, Kashi said. Nukde scoffed, looking down the street nearby. They think I'm dead, she said. I can't afford to start a family, only to find out one of them is living in my backyard. So you want me to give you a hit list of the family under the pretense that you need it for protection? He asked. You really think I'd be dumb enough to go after the family on my own? She asked. It's for self-preservation. You've helped me this far. The very last thing that keeps me alive is knowing how to avoid these seven other people. Nukde took a deep breath, withdrew a pack of cigarettes he'd bought from Korea, and put a cigarette in his mouth. He lit it, pulled, and breathed a cloud of smoke. He swallowed, then withdrew a pad and paper. Sitting on the street corner, Nukde wrote down 14 names, two for each of the family members, and seven locations. He tore the sheet of paper off the notepad, folded it, and stood up. 
With the cigarette still smoldering from the corner of his mouth, he made to give it to her with two fingers. Nukte held it back from her at the last second. I'm giving you this list in confidence that you're going to use it strictly for protection. But, if you do decide to go after the family and you do figure out where I am, please remember who helped you and let me be. Maintaining her expressionless face, Kashi nodded and took the paper from Nukte's fingers. Thank you. She checked it to see that there were in fact seven names on the list. Only five of them were going to remain in America, and that was good. Pick a place that's obscure. Nokde finished his cigarette and put it out in the sand atop the trash can by the bus station. Don't do something foolish and get yourself noticed. Everyone's money should be at their drop point, including yours. You have everything you need? Your passport? Visa? Gashi nodded. Well, it was good working with you, Gashi, and it was good to know you, Mira. Nukte nodded to her. It was the first time any of the family had ever used her original name. Nukte hailed a cab as it rolled by. The cab slowed to the curb. And uh, work on your English, he said in his own broken English before getting into the backseat of the cab. The cab rolled away and Nukte was gone. The original plan was for Kashi to finish her list of targets the morning prior, and then for her to get on a regular commercial flight out of Incheon unnoticed to Albuquerque, New Mexico. Her money was in a safe deposit box that had been set up by Nukde. Each person in the family was to land in their randomly appointed location where their money would be waiting for them to start their new life. Being 800 miles away from her set location put her on very uneven footing out of the gate in America. Nukde had given her $2,000 to work with in her go bag. She was able to get a bus to Albuquerque and arrive almost 24 hours later. The bus had to stop at every single bus stop. She arrived at 7 in the morning, got some not very good donuts across the street from the bus station, then set off for the bank. Her money was in a heavy suitcase in her safe deposit box that was under her name, Lee Hyun Ju. She produced her ID for the bank teller, was walked into the safe deposit box room, and left with her suitcase just as planned. It was the only thing that had gone as it was supposed to from the entire experience. From there, she was to start her new life. She sat on the corner of an Albuquerque street, using the suitcase for her $12 million as a seat as she sat and ate the last of her soggy donut that had been baking in her pocket. Five names resided in the United States with her, assuming Nukde Day didn't make up a bunch of people and locations off the top of his head. Looking at them, Hyun didn't think they were made up. Most of the names and locations fit the personalities of their former pseudonyms, like Pak Chi had always loved when it rained in Korea so him being assigned to Seattle, Washington made sense. Cal, the assassin who had failed to finish her off properly, he had moved to Miami, Florida. Chochu, the only other woman among their ranks, now resided in New York City. Hyun knew she would be content partying her inheritance away in that town. Han Cho Yu was living in Long Beach, California, and Mu Bi would be chilling in Golden, Colorado. A sweeter, happy ending for each of them could not have been conceived. Hyun decided that to stay in Albuquerque would be risky since no one would actually be able to confirm her body had been found in South Korea, and the family would be checking. Sure, there was always the possibility that her body was swept out to sea, but they knew Hyun was no normal human being. None of them were. Without a body, her death could only be speculation, and that was never good enough for the family. Making her way back to the bus station, Hyun took the bus to the next best place, Dallas-Fort Worth. She scanned Craigslist and was able to find a group of female college roommates who were looking for someone to occupy the last room in their house. 
Hyun arrived, sight unseen, and paid for three months up front. Marcy, the landlord and homeowner, said she would be flexible with her needing to move out as long as Hyun could give her two weeks' notice, at least. Please tell me if you're going to have some dude come over and stay for a month or something. Marcy rolled her eyes in the living room before grabbing a bong from under the table. She brandished it at Chelsea, the redhead who was parked on the couch with her feet on the ottoman. And make sure you do your shit outside. I don't care how cold it is. Chelsea mouthed an apology before grabbing the glass bubbler to go out through the sliding glass door. We have two other roommates that'll pop in and out now and then. They're Jessa and Miranda. Miranda sleeps all day because she works night shift at a warehouse. If you make a bunch of noise during the day, she'll lose her shit. There's a big fan in there so she can make white noise, but fair warning, she's nice until she's not. Okay, Hyun nodded and Marcy led her to her room next to Jess's. This is you. I'm sorry to tell you this, but the walls are very thin and occasionally you might have to hear Jess and her boyfriend. I don't care. Hyun entered her room and put her suitcase and go bag down. It wasn't a big room, but $400 a month is a pretty sweet deal. Well, let me know if you need anything. Be sure to do your own dishes if you don't mind. Marcy closed the door behind her and Hyun was alone. She looked at herself on her smartphone camera. She looked horrible. She could just see the band-aid that Nukde had placed on her forehead beneath her hat. The girls ordered pizza, drank tequila, and planned to marathon a bunch of Keanu Reeves movies. Hyun had someone she needed to find, and she didn't want to do it from her home. She took three grand from her suitcase, closed and locked it, then left her room. Marcy had been proactive enough to get everyone individual keys and locks for each room, so Hyun was able to lock the door behind her. She went to the nearest appliance store and was able to get a decent laptop. It took longer for her to set the damn thing up at the McDonald's across the street than to actually get on the dark web and find a good source. One would think they could find someone with reliable skills by flashing money around all the different chat rooms, but most people just assume they're the feds. Hyun met a user that went by the name of Bomber. He was located in the colony, which was north of Dallas. He asked where she was precisely. She told him she was in a McDonald's in Bedford, and he told her to give him a second. Holy cow, you're hot, he sent back in the chat box. Hyun looked over to see the security camera over the workers that were hurrying back and forth for customers. The guy was good, and quick too. Your history is bogus. What you mean? Hyun texted back. Whoever you are, you have no work history, no house credit, but it says you're 28 years old. Sorry, but it makes me nervous. I really need help. Meet me and I can explain. I want to see you, he texted. You see me, she replied. I want to see more of you. Meet me at the McDonald's in the colony. Hyun sent him, exited her application, closed the laptop, and then she quickly flashed the workers and camera before leaving the store to the snickering of everyone behind the counter. There were three store locations, and Hyun picked the one by the freeway since it was the easiest to get to. She didn't tell him which one she would be in, but she assumed Bomber was a big boy and could figure it out. Bomber was a big boy. A 210-pound 17-year-old kid entered the restaurant. He wore a pink shirt that was draped over his large stomach and walked up to the counter. He had pimples all over his face. He ordered two Big Macs, an extra-large Sprite, and two orders of extra-large fries. Hyun's mouth was open in shock as the boy placed his tray at her table and slid into the booth across from her. You want some fries? He held three out to her in his dirty fingers. Are you Bomber? Hyun asked lowly. He gave her a big cheese and nodded. You're still in school, no? Hyun asked. 
Who needs school? Bomber shrugged. I can do whatever I want. I need someone with experience, said Hyun. I can't afford to make any mistakes. It's fine. I got ten years of experience, Bomber said, shoveling fries into his mouth. So you would know how to get me a military-grade block of M112C4 for an M183 demolition charge assembly? Bomber paused in mid-chew. What are you trying to do? I'm not into any crazy shit. The world is seven people too heavy. I have seven targets. Help me deal with my targets, and two million dollars are yours. Wow. Bomber continued eating. He sucked his sprite through his straw as he stared past her. Hyun watched him eat both cartons of fries and a Big Mac. He wadded up the hamburger paper and unwrapped the second Big Mac. I'm in, but only if I get to hang out with you. I met you ten minutes ago, and you're the only person in this country I trust. Cool, I'm honored, he said through a mouthful of hamburger. Do you want me to fix your history? I can spruce it up a bit, give you a pretty neat background. Whatever makes me look less suspicious, Hyun said. Last request, I promise. He leveled his eyes on hers. One nude, just one, that's all I'm asking. Maybe, if you finish this, I don't care. Done. He wadded up the second paper and wiped his mouth with a napkin. Done, done, and done. Your wishes are my command, madame. You were serious about that brick of C4, weren't you? Hyun nodded. Damn. Bomber pursed his lips while tonguing food from the corners of his mouth. I think I can get my hands on it. Also, do you know how to hack a television monitor? Hyun asked. Depends on if it's connected to the interwebs, he said. If so, sure, not hard at all. Need any other military equipment? I'll send you my list. Hyun said. Excellent. Well, I hope to spend more time with you soon, Bomber said. Here's my number. Hyun took it, called him, and both saved the other's number. Pleasure doing business with you, Bomber shrugged. He shook Hyun's hand that was tiny in comparison to his, and then the two parted ways. Hyun went back home where the girls were already trashed. They had brought several boys over. Three of them were smoking with Chelsea outside on the back patio around a large table beneath an orange backyard light. One of the boys was sitting on the outer edge of the group with a drawing pad in his lap as he scribbled something she couldn't see. Hyun took a shower for the first time since she had swam out of the Yellow Sea in South Korea. They had tried to kill her. None of them cared. No one tried to intervene. No one tried to help her except Nook Day. Some family. She left the restroom, almost ran into one of the boys who had been on the back patio, but Hyun was so tired, she barely registered him as she went around, entered her room, and locked the door. She slept on the floor without a bed, or even clothes to change into. She was able to sleep now, knowing her priorities had been dealt with. 4. Hyun felt the 32 kick, but maintained her aim upon the silhouette paper target at the end of the shooting range. She was out of ammunition. She dropped the empty magazine from the 32 and went inside to get more. Lady, I'd hate to be on the wrong end of your sights, the guy behind the counter said. Think I could get another box? Hyun asked. Sorry, we're closing here in about ten minutes, so we gotta wrap everything up, he said. Yeah, I know a 24-hour place if you're interested. Sure, Hyun said. The guy gave her a business card for a place near Dallas. Thanks. She placed the 32 in its magazine on the counter and paid out her tab. $450 for six hours of bullets. She had tried multiple weapons of different grades and sizes while the staff at the gun range sat back in shock as she pinned every target in the head without missing a single shot. 
By the way, he said, motioning at the men watching her over their shoulders, both staff and other shooters, you ever need anything, just say the word. It was almost dark when Hyun went out to her car. She had purchased a modest 2011 Honda Civic until she had time to put together a good business front. That wouldn't be something she could focus on for another few years. She got in and found a spam of texts from Bomber. He had a bead on her brick, which was good. She had asked him to stop trying to flirt with her, but he kept doing it. Occasionally, he would send her charming photos of himself. It was awkward because Hyun was 11 years older than him, and she hadn't sent him a single photo of her. On the other hand, Bomber was so resourceful, he could probably look at her whenever he wanted. Returning to her house, she found the group of girls, including Marcy, all outside chatting around the table, except the guy who had been drawing the night before. He was still drawing, but sitting on the couch inside with the television on but muted. Hyun went to the kitchen to get a glass of water when the boy approached. He gave her a drawing, then turned around and went back to the couch without saying a word. Hyun looked down at the paper to see that it was a picture of her from the night before, an almost photographically drawn image of her with her hair wet from the shower when he bumped into her in the hall. He had captured everything, including the small mole on her left cheek. There was no caption, no signature, just a strange gesture from an interesting individual. She glanced at him on the couch. His eyes darted back and forth as he scratched another picture onto his art pad. Hyun went to her room, changed into her gym clothes, and took the picture with her on her way out. She went to the nearest picture framing shop in a department store and had them frame the picture with a sleek black frame. Hyun finished her workout at the gym near their house, picked up the completed picture in its frame, purchased a hammer and box of drywall nails from the hardware store next door, and then went back home. The group had left to go see a movie, and that was fine. She mounted the picture on her wall. Hyun made herself a packet of shin noodles and sat at the kitchen table in silence. She stared ahead while she ate. She saw Cal raise his gun to shoot her in the misty, early morning air. He was in Miami, living like there was no tomorrow with the idea that he had killed her. She chewed the noodles quickly, her left fist clenched tightly upon the kitchen table. She heard and felt the ghost of the kick from the thirty-two in her hands, saw the hole in the head of the target, then thought of Cal. The two would align. She would kill him, and right now that was all that really mattered to her. After eating and washing her dishes, Hyun was lying in bed with her eyes wide, staring at the ceiling. She listened to her breathing for a few minutes, and then got up, put on her jacket, and left the house. Pulling the card from her coat pocket, Hyun got in her car, then drove to Dallas for another few hours of shooting. She stayed until 1.20am, then went to the bar a few blocks from her house. Six shots of tequila, she ordered from the bartender. He obliged and Hyun killed all six, paid her tab, then walked home from the bar, tipsy. Considering all the concern most Korean women had about the dangers of being alone at night in America, no one bothered her as she walked. There were no drivers to slow and catcall her or anything she might have expected, not that she was worried about it. Entering her house, the television was low and most of her roommates had passed out on the couch. She saw the boy who had drawn her sitting alone outside while he drew another picture. When Hyun walked to the sliding glass door, she noticed he was drawing her again, from their encounter in the kitchen this time. His face was so pure, his lips parted, his eyes loving and considerate as he added the touch of shading to her cheeks. The picture captured the darkness in her eyes, and Hyun felt sad for a moment to know that the rest of the world could see what she wanted to hide.
she pulled back the sliding glass door and stepped outside. The boy looked surprised and now scared at the prospect of being alone in her presence. Why do you keep drawing me? Hyun asked. I draw the things I love, he said as he dropped his focus back to the picture. He continued scratching details into the portrait. Hyun grabbed his hand for him to stop. The man looked up at her. Three minutes later, the two were making out in her room. Hyun pulled his shirt from his jeans and pulled it over his head before wrapping her arms around his neck. He had a hairy chest that she wasn't used to, but she didn't care. He ran his fingers through her long black hair as they kissed. Their lips parted. My name is David, he managed. Hyun, she said before latching onto him by the mouth once more. Hyun kicked her door closed and slapped the light on from behind her. David pulled away when she saw his picture framed upon her wall. You liked it? He laughed a little. I did, Hyun sighed. I don't have a bed yet. I just noticed, David swallowed, turning his eyes back to her. I really like you. I think, I think it would be unfortunate if I wasn't able to draw you anymore. You can draw me whenever you like, she whispered and kissed him again. 5. When it comes to superpowers, it's always a game, even if the game has long stagnated and the players have walked away from the table. Therefore, it does not do to remain stationary and build defenses. Not only should the enemy be monitored, but the weak enemies should be removed from the game altogether. Han Cho Yu's American name was Christian Miller. As one of Bomber's first assignments, he was able to uncover Cho Yu's real name, location, and home address. That was, by Hyun's definition, what made him weak. Not that he had money to spend and spent it, but that he spent it in such blatantly foolish ways that allowed himself to be discovered. Bomber had been monitoring all the locations where the family members resided. He'd found a little on everyone, but only Cho Yu purchased a 219-inch Samsung monitor dubbed The Wall, only to have it delivered directly to his estate. Hyun wondered how fast her life would end if she had been so vain and obvious with her money. But that's all she needed. Christian Miller was as dead as any target she had ever been ordered to execute. She would do it with the professional skill she was accustomed to, and he would be laid to rest honorably. Bomber tracked Cho Yu's bank statements and found his social media profile. He was having a party the following Friday. Bomber sent Hyun his social info. Hyun was able to see exactly one of her brothers in arms for years, standing in front of a turntable with his hat backwards as he grinned. She remembered how quiet he had been when they were kids. All eight of them had been children when they began. It was when they were there most deadly. Hyun could recall seeing him with a face full of pimples in high school. She knew that he had been working on music in his off time between school and work. The family could spend time together in the office, but they were never to socialize outside. South Korea was a small country, and any breach of security could compromise every one of them. Hyun thought about that as she drove through Nevada on her all-nighter to California. She would be at that party, and that's where she would strike. She stopped in Lake Tahoe and got a hotel room in town for cash. Carrying a bottle of vodka into her room, Hyun got tipsy alone, wishing she could go to the bar. She wanted desperately to get drunk and pass out, but she just needed to take the edge off. Most of the alcohol would be needed for the following afternoon. It was a ritual of sorts to take a shot or two of vodka before a night of work. She waited until 11 in the morning, checked out, then continued the last leg of her journey to Long Beach. It was a Friday afternoon, so traffic in Los Angeles was nightmarish but normal to the local Californians. 
The 405 took her to the 710, which she exited south and headed for the location she had memorized. There were no phones for this mission, so she had no map for the journey. Hyun paid cash for an hour to park in a spot close to downtown Long Beach. Cho Yu's house was located six blocks from the ocean. According to Bomber, there was a vacant lot behind his place between the business buildings leading to the adjacent street. Cho Yu used the space to host his house parties. Hyun downed a third of the bottle of vodka she had bought, and then prepared her Beretta 71. She put in her earpiece, connected with Bomber's earpiece, as she got out of her car. It was essentially a two-way radio frequency they were on. Bomber was a few blocks from the target. I'm on my way over. How does it look? She crossed the street as the crosswalk sign turned green. Bomber had a drone with a camera on it hovering over the party while no one was any the wiser. Looks like we've got two bouncers guarding the path into the alleyway where there are around 60 guests. I've been floating around most of the day, and I know there are more goons in there. I've counted at least five. Can you give me an overview of the area? Sorry, I'm not military, so I wouldn't know the jargon. It doesn't matter, just give me eyes on the area. Oh, okay. You've got the alleyway entrance, you've got the bouncers on your left if you're coming from the street, they'll see you coming, and there are lights in the alleyway. Keep going, Hyun said, continuing. Oh, snap. Two more guys are coming out for a smoke, Bomber said. I think they see me. Shoot. I'm moving out of line of sight now. What else can you tell me, Hyun asked. So you've got the alleyway, it's narrow where the bouncers are, and about 25 yards in it cuts left with the building. It's on the inside where our friend Christian is set up. On the opposite side of the alley, mounted on the wall, he has a big screen television. Everyone's dancing there on the pavement between him and the TV. Behind that, the alley ends and there's the other street with the business buildings. What else is there? Is it dark other than the light from the television? There's some, like, strobe light shit going on with the music, but other than that, the flat screen and the alleyway lights, it's pretty dark in there. I'm closing on the street next to the alleyway. Are you ready to jack the monitor? Sure, let me just set this $500 drone on a random building top and hack a monitor for you real quick, Bomber said sarcastically. That is what you're getting paid to do. Yeah, I know. I'm not really sure why I said it like that since that's literally what I'm doing. Let me know when it's showtime. Hyun wore a fitting white blouse with the sleeves rolled up to her elbows. She wore a short black skirt and black stockings with her small, almost kid-sized black dress shoes. She had her hair done up in a knot behind her head. Her pistol lay within her Michael Kors bag that was slung over her shoulder. Hyun kept her hand in the purse with the pistol's grip loosely in her palm. It's go time, Hyun said and turned off the earpiece before dropping it in her bag. She turned onto the street and walked toward the alley. She could hear the bass beats thrumming throughout the corridor ahead. The bouncers were standing on the street corner with some of Joe Yu's men. They saw her and all of them grinned hungrily at her. It was the skirt and her toned legs. Hyun used both style and men's nature to lust after particular wardrobe choices in women as an advantage. It almost always worked. Hey there, miss, one man said smoothly. Here for the party, Hyun said. What's the, uh, what's the name? One of the bouncers asked. Oh, it would be under... Hyun went into her purse. Like lightning, she produced the silence Beretta 71 and went down the line, emptying the 8-bullet magazine within 2.3 seconds, two bullets per man. It was like music, 4-4 time signature with 8 eighths notes and a measure. The beats don't change, the notes don't change, and yet it's the execution that makes all the difference. The four men crumpled, one after the other, as Hyun stepped over them. 
She moved down the alley without breaking stride, business-like, and in business dress. How appropriate. She dropped the spent magazine and reloaded a second one. On the television monitor opposite to Joe Yu's DJ setup, Bomber's face was upon the screen as he yelled nonsensically into the camera. <laughs> Joe Yu and the three other men with him stared at Bomber's massive distraction in both shock and exasperation as Hyun approached from behind. The strobe of the light continued flashing upon Cho Yu's familiar, confused expression. She placed the pistol nozzle to the back of Cho Yu's head that was covered with his stealer's cap, pulled the trigger, then moved the pistol aim to the other men as she'd done with the previous four. The continual thrum of the bass music covered all sound of her pistol. She turned on her heel as the rest of the partygoers were still entranced by Bomber's insane antics. Raising her purse to her person, she began to jog back down the narrow part of the alleyway. Hopping over the bodies of the four men she had killed, Hyun was around the corner before anyone saw her. She ran to the street and sprinted for her car. There was no one behind her. She had gotten away with it. It was one man down. Hyun felt considerably lighter as she threw her car door open, slid inside, and pulled the door closed behind her. She started the car, pulled out of the parking area, then got right back on the freeway. Her job was finished for the night. Hancho Yu could be a liability no longer. One down, seven to go. Six. There are years where turning points feel like they take a long time, but then in retrospect, they seem to have happened in an instant. The binary open and close nature of a hinge upon a door. Of course, it was inevitable that Hyun would meet and likely fall in love with someone in America, but she didn't expect it to happen almost instantly when she arrived. A year of courtship passed between her and David. They left Marcy's home, and they got their own apartment. They argued, fought, threw things at one another, but still fell into one another's arms at the end of the day. The two had discussed marriage. They each wanted it as much as the other, but David didn't have a stable job, being a freelance artist. He was only three years younger than her. He knew nothing of her large quantity of cash, her history, or her future plans for murder. David didn't even know Hyun could shoot a gun, and she preferred to keep it that way. The problem with inevitability was the morning she woke up feeling terrible. It had been two weeks since her monthly time had passed, and there was little question about what was happening to her. She and David went to the doctor only to receive a big, Congratulations, you two are about to be three. All of Hyun's plans were dashed at that moment. She was pregnant. She was going to be a mother. Mothers do a lot of things, but killing men for revenge wasn't typically one of them. It was as strange as receiving a portrait of herself when David dropped to one knee to propose to her at the park on their way home from the hospital. They kissed like they had the first time. Hyun just knew all she wanted was for him to keep holding her on that afternoon as the sun disappeared over the neighborhood houses on the horizon. A year after being left for dead in the Yellow Sea, Hyun was very pregnant in a diner with David when she saw him on the big screen television overhead. Muja B, now known by the name of Stephen Lee, had started a massive social media company in Colorado. He was being interviewed on CNN, laughing, looking perfect, wearing designer clothes and cheek yellow framed glasses. Honey, are you okay? David touched her hand. Hyun unclenched her fist from her fork that she had jammed so hard into the wooden cafe tabletop that it had punctured a line of four holes in the surface. Fine, she said and got up to get another fork. 
she couldn't help thinking about the contrast between her and them. They were out living their best life while she was stuck here in Texas, pregnant, and hiding from them so the rest of the family would believe she was dead. It wasn't right. It wasn't square. It was not equal. Hyun would have to make it square, pregnant or otherwise. She decided to give Bomber a call. It had been several months since they spoke. He'd gotten a girlfriend himself and stayed as busy as her. Hey, I need everything you can find on Stephen Lee, she texted. The social media guy? he texted back. Yes, I'll check the file tonight. Since everyone is watching everything, Hyun and Bomber made sure to avoid open discussion through text. When she didn't have David looking over her shoulder, she spent time studying how fuses and small transponder devices could connect. Once David had gone to sleep that night, she crept out of bed to check her and Bomber's file. Bomber had dropped a considerable load of information for her to sift through. She found hundreds of pictures of Stephen and his wife and daughter. Bomber had acquired surveillance footage from the security cameras in their house, and had conveniently included one silent video of Stephen and his wife having sex. It was grainy and far away, so she didn't know why he bothered. He unrolled her eyes and went to the next file, which was far more interesting. Stephen's 13-year-old daughter, Alyssa, was something of a piano virtuoso. There was even an article that someone had written about her after she executed Chopin's double-thirds etude in G-sharp flawlessly at the end of her ninth grade school concert. In the article, Alyssa was quoted as saying, My father sits in on every single lesson with me, comes to every concert, and never lets me skip a day of practice. Without my dad, I don't think I could play a single key on the piano. There was a document in their folder on their dark web hard drive for notes, questions, or comments that either of them might have. Hyun asked when and where Stephen and Alyssa go for private lessons. A few minutes later, Bomber responded, saying that every Monday and Thursday the two drove to the music conservatory at the University of Denver. They would stay between 7.30 and 9.00 p.m. Her father always sat in the same chair at the back of the hall while Alyssa and her private lesson teacher went through her challenging music bar by bar. Hyun examined the scene closely, looking at everything. She noticed the seats were like the kind they have in theaters where the bottom folds up automatically when a person gets to their feet. Hyun asked him if he could get her a sped-up time-lapse of the day into a minute. That took Bomber a little longer, but he delivered. Hyun saw different college kids coming and going through the hall. Sometimes the chairs were full of students, sometimes they were completely empty other than just five or six people. Only in the evening did Stephen Lee sit alone while Alyssa worked at the piano. And sure enough, it was always in the same chair. He never deviated. She asked when the janitor came through on average early in the morning. Bomber said it was usually between 1.30 and 2.30 a.m. He added that people could arrive as early as 4.30 in the morning on any given day. It was plenty of time. The pieces were falling into place. The equation was there, and all Hyun had to do was make it happen. She thanked Bomber and told him to stand by. Getting David on board for a trip to Colorado would be a hard sell. He was stressed because regardless of how many applications he put into art departments around the Metroplex, he couldn't seem to get a call back. A crazy scheme entered Hyun's mind. If money was technically no object, she could make a few things happen if she wanted. She would just need to enlist the help of Bomber, and he would be happy to keep David occupied while she did her business. Hyun dropped all the instructions that were necessary for Bomber to know, along with the necessary funds for the project, into their dark web folder. Two weeks later, Hyun had to act surprised when David received an email from someone in Golden, Colorado. He said he saw one of my pages and wanted to give me an interview for a big company that's going to be involved in one of those new superhero movies. 
He's thinking in a few years I might run the whole art department. Hyun tried to act pleased by the news, but was more irritated by how thick Bomber must have laid it on in the email. We can go. When is the interview? It's Thursday evening, said David. I hope that's okay. Sure, Hyun said. I'll see if I can find some hotels. She had already booked the hotel before talking to David. She had to do this. She couldn't let another year pass without making progress. Hyun felt bad to see David getting so excited for the opportunity, knowing it was a farce. He gathered his best pieces and brought his best dress clothes for the interview. They loaded up the car Sunday night and left early Monday morning. They drove northwest all the way to Colorado. It wasn't the first time Hyun had traveled in America, but it was the first time she processed how big America actually was. She could have driven all the way across South Korea in the time it took them to drive to Colorado. Driving through the mountains to Denver was worth the trip alone. While she drove, she went over all of her planning from the weeks prior. Everything she needed was under the spare tire in the trunk of her Civic that they were looking to trade for an odyssey once the baby came. Hyun recalled being out in the Texas field near her house the week before with a modified locksmith OBD device. Most locksmiths use it to code a transponder key to a specific vehicle, but the modified device allowed her to code the transponder to anything else with a transponder. She had already built the apparatus she would need to accept the transponder connection in order to activate an electrical charge from a distance. Hyun wanted to get up close and put a bullet in Stephen Lee's head, but she didn't want to fire a weapon repeatedly while clearing out Stephen's security detail. It wasn't safe for the baby. Getting access to Stephen and even killing him was easy. What was not easy was to end him and only him without even being in the room at all, and that was the only way this was going down. Once Hyun had programmed the key to the other transponder, she tested the device in the field. She stood about 50 yards back, pressed the unlock button on the old Hyundai transponder key that was linked to the opposing transponder across the field, and watched the puff of smoke that signaled the charge had gone off as expected. 50 yards would be close enough for her to get in, press the button, then leave. The plan was to break into the conservatory the night before Stephen was to bring his daughter in for lessons, install the device in the back of Stephen's chair, connect it to enough C4 to liquefy Stephen's insides, and place the trigger in the apparatus that would activate two magnets, one in the seat and one in the backrest. That way, while it was inactive, people could come and go and sit down in Stephen's chair without being any the wiser that death was a spark away from them. But when Stephen later got up from his chair when it was active... The magnets would separate with the automatic lift of the seat and trigger the spark. They arrived late in the evening after traveling through a rather large snow dump. Bomber messaged her that he had arrived as well and would be renting out the office from a guy who was perfectly happy to let him pretend like his office was his for a thousand bucks on his day off on Thursday, so long as Bomber put everything back where he found it. Bomber had no use for anything within the office, but he would be improvising with David for possibly a very long time. Hyun thanked him for his help and told him she would call him in a few hours. Then, she and David watched a movie in the hotel room before going to sleep for the evening. Hyun waited for David's light snoring to begin, then got out of bed without disturbing him, put on her maternity-fit turtleneck sweater, black yoga pants, and black cap. She went out to the car, got in, and drove to the university. It was 2.35 a.m. and big flurries of snow were falling over the city. Hyun put on a pair of blue rubber surgical gloves. Opening the trunk and lifting the spare from the trunk wheel well, Hyun withdrew her tool bag with everything she needed, then called Bomber. He didn't pick up the first or second time she called. The third time she called, he finally picked up. 
Hey, sorry, he said through a haze of sleep. I totally passed out. Give me a sec so I can check out the security feed. He sucked a wad of snot from his nose on the other end and swallowed it. Janitor just wrapped up. You should be good to go inside. I'll buzz you in and wipe your CCTV history. Hyun thanked him and kept him on the line with a pair of Bluetooth headphones. The door that required a card key to enter flashed from red to green when she put her hand on it. She entered and followed the path that rounded the stairwell leading up to the second floor where the piano room was located. She must have counted the seats from both sides of the back aisle where he sat a thousand times. It was eight chairs from the left, seven from the right. There was never any deviation. It was always where he sat to watch Alyssa play. Locating the precise chair, Bomber confirmed it was the right one, and Hyun got to work. She took both halves of the chair apart, unscrewing the pads from the back. She popped off the padding with a large flathead screwdriver, and withdrew a quarter of the M112 brick of C4 she had brought. She molded it into the back part of the backrest where the cushion would seat. Placing the wired magnet apparatus into the bottom of the cushion groove where there was just enough room for it to seat, he unplugged the spark point into the gray putty-like substance. She placed a fresh AA battery in the device, which automatically powered it on. The device was inactive until she pressed the transponder key, but it was currently on at the moment. She replaced the cushion and screwed it back into place. She opened the bottom part of the seat and taped the opposing magnet in line with the middle where the other magnet was set. The light on the device around the magnet glowed blue when she floated the seat without the cushion where it would be when someone sat down. She emulated the motion of the seat swinging away, and the light went out. That meant the device would function perfectly. Hyun screwed the bottom seat back together and put it back in line with the other seats. By the end, she was looking at the chair as it looked identical to the other chairs around it. No one would be the wiser to anything being off-kilter with the situation. It was time to leave. Hyun quickly gathered her tools and left the conservatory. Bomber cleared her history with the cameras, and it was as though she had never been there at all. She had to slow drive through the snow to get back to the hotel. It was almost 4.50 in the morning by the time Hyun got back to their room. David was awake and wondering where she went. She told him she left some medicine in the car and couldn't find it. The two went back to sleep, Hyun snoring louder than David from how tired she was from the trip and setting up the massively illegal explosive device long into the morning. David was grouchy when he woke up. He complained that the pictures he brought weren't good enough to showcase for his work. He tried to draw something new but only got frustrated. The two argued most of the morning and afternoon, but they made up right before he had to leave for the interview. Hyun, acting like she was going to be relaxing in the hotel room, gave him a loving hug and kiss before sending him on his way. The moment she closed the door, she got dressed and left for the conservatory. The hard part was out of the way. All she had to do was press a button. Good morning, David, Bomber said as he opened the door to the office. He was wearing a suit that was too small for him, but his hair and glasses looked sleek and well done. Morning? Are you an intern? I'm here for a job interview. David said. No, I'm the one doing the interview. Bomber gave his signature grin. There were orange Cheeto crumbs on the corners of his mouth and he hadn't brushed his teeth in several days. Name's Richie Davis, but you can call me Rich, or Richard, or Dick. David paused with his pictures half out of his portfolio. I'll stick with Rich. You are hiring an artist, right? This looks like a lawyer's office, David said. Oh, yeah, 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 we're totally looking for someone to shake up our art department, or lack thereof, Bomber said. Over the phone you said I might be running the art department in a few years, said David. 
Now I'm learning you don't have one? This is a serious interview, right? And you have a long way to get here. Oh yeah! Bomber swallowed hard, trying to think on his feet. Yeah, art, let's see. Draw me like a French bulldog. He grabbed a legal pad from the desk with a pen and handed it to David. David looked at the legal pad. You want me to draw a French bulldog on this legal pad for no purpose. I will pay you $150 right now to draw me a French bulldog, Bomber said. I thought you said something about superheroes for an upcoming movie, David said. You can draw a superhero if you want, but... Bomber reclined in his chair. My girlfriend and I are looking to get a French bulldog, and I think they're really cool. You want the job or not? I... I want a job I can feel proud of when I go tell my fiancé that I got one. She's pregnant and we really need this, even if we have to relocate, David explained. Bomber gave David a strained look as he licked his lips. He really needed to take a shit. Listen, he got up, farting a little as he unbuttoned his blazer. You, you waste that picture real quick, but I gotta drop a deuce. Here. Bomber withdrew his wallet and gave him $200. Keep drawing, I'll be back. He waddled toward the restroom across the hall like it was already almost too late. The door closed behind him as David stood there with $200 in one hand and the legal pad Bomber had given to him in the other. Great, said Gareth Stone, Alyssa's piano instructor. He sat next to Alyssa as she played at the large concert grand piano that sat in the center of the second floor of the conservatory. Stephen Lee sat at the back of the hall in his usual seat. It was just the three of them in the whole hall. Let's take it from the top. Five more minutes, Mr. Lee, Gareth called up to him. Stephen waved and put his phone away to listen to Alyssa play the full second movement of Beethoven's pathetique sonata. He took off his glasses and covered his mouth with his hand. It was so beautiful, and Alyssa made it sound even more so. Stephen pictured the European countryside flowing, thought of Beethoven and how he loved to walk in nature. He thought about how lucky he was to have lived after killing hundreds of people throughout his career in South Korea. He had come a long way from that rundown house in Daegu. He remembered his first kill, how unremarkable it really was. A person is and then isn't. Steven, or Mujapi as he had been known to the family back then, didn't know the target. He was just there to kill them. He had loved using a 44 Magnum. It wasn't quiet. It was messy, but it sent a message. That's why the family called him Mujapi. He had heard of targets surviving a double tap from a 22. There was no question about the target's death with a single tap from a 44. No second shot necessary. Stephen massaged his face and put his glasses back on as he stared at Alyssa. She was the product of her perfect mother, who should have been a supermodel in Stephen Lee's opinion. But Alyssa's naturally straight black hair, her long, delicate fingers, and height were all her mother. At least he did one good thing by helping create her. Alyssa finished the final repeat of the melody, then did the classical, playfully Beethoven conclusion. Stephen Lee clapped three times as he pushed himself up. He went to call, Bravo! Bravo! The seat flipped. Alyssa screamed as Gareth jumped out of the chair to his feet next to her. The fire alarm went off, but Stephen Lee wasn't around to hear it. His ears weren't even connected to his head anymore. Well, David, this is absolutely wonderful, said Bomber as he surveyed the very well-done image of a French bulldog David had drawn after looking at pictures on his phone. So I have to confess that this whole thing was political. 
I was supposed to say I interviewed a few artists for the marketing team, blah, 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 but we're actually not hiring anyone at this time. I drove all the way here from Texas, David said, and I'm extremely grateful for that, so I can tell my boss I did what he said to do, and, well, that's it. Here, I'm supposed to give you this 2000 bucks for your effort. This whole thing was a giant waste of time, David interrupted. Yeah, gotcha. Have a good afternoon, dick. David immediately left the office, closing the door behind him. That was rude, Bomber said to himself in the sudden silence, pursing his lips. Oh, right, I told him to call me that. Hyun arrived at the hotel and walked past the staff, all of whom were watching the lobby flat-screen television that displayed the smoldering hole in the second floor of the University of Denver Music Conservatory building. She had done it, and without anyone seeing her. Before she stepped onto the elevator, Hyun overheard the newscaster mention that there was only one casualty from the explosion, and that was the social media guru, Stephen Lee, in what seemed like an almost coordinated attack. She went to her room, took a shower, and quickly changed. Fifteen minutes later, David entered the hotel room. He had taken off his tie and undone the top few buttons on his collar. Well, I didn't get the job, but I did make $2,200 for a couple of French bulldog pictures. Hyun acted disappointed, but internally she was ecstatic that she had wiped the smile off Mujapi's face. They stayed the night at the hotel and checked out in the morning to go home. 7. Nuke Day's name in America was Tyler Moon. He ran a car mechanic shop in Nashville, Tennessee that specialized in Korean cars like Hyundai, Kia, and Genesis. Like the rest of the family, to hear of Stephen Lee's death was to cast suspicion on every other family member. Everyone worried about the possibility that Kashi might have come back for revenge. But it wasn't her style. Blowing up a person from a distance wasn't really anyone's style. Regular gunshot fatalities are one thing for law enforcement, but an explosion? Big departments get involved in explosions, which means investigations. Likely no one would find anything, but the point of a hit job is to draw as little attention to oneself as possible. Setting off a bomb is like waving a pistol in a spotlight. Nukdae was still the only one who knew of Hyun's existence, but that was going to have to change during their next meeting. They needed to be fairly warned that she might be coming for them. He still had no actual clue if she was the one involved, but there was a 50-50 chance it was her or another family member. There were no other options. Nukdae was thinking about that while he ate his morning breakfast at his daily cafe over his third cup of coffee, when two people entered through the glass front door. A young man with his pregnant wife entered and took off their coats. When the woman turned back around, Nukdae saw that it was Hyun. His heart skipped a beat and he put his coffee cup over his face. Hyun looked directly at him and gave him a smile as she and her husband or boyfriend followed the waitress to their table. Run the math. What are the odds you move to a new city and state, then your ex enters your local cafe at random? It wasn't impossible, but was quite the coincidence. Nukde checked the exits. He saw the waitress bringing food for another patron. If he dropped a $100 bill, he could just book it and they would be fine, right? The staff might be a little apprehensive that he took off, but it got him out. She knew where he was, which meant she might know where he lived and worked. How long had she been following him? How many days? Hyun might know every single thing he did for the last year. There was no running from her. He could either find a way to figure out what she wanted, or it was him or her. 
Nook Day's expression darkened as he ate the bacon and eggs that had become tasteless in his mouth. Could he use the 9mm in his back waistband to murder a pregnant woman right here in this cafe? He'd go to hard prison, probably for life, but he'd be alive. What if she didn't kill Stephen and she just needed to talk to him? Nookday could not think of a single instance where she would break all the rules to communicate with him for any reason at all whatsoever. Something was wrong. She was here for a reason, and Nookday couldn't see a single valid purpose that didn't put him in some form of danger. He took a shaky breath, looked over at her to see her looking back at him from the corner booth where they'd been placed. Her eyes flicked to the restroom. Facing forward, Nookday wiped his mouth with his napkin. He got the check from the waitress and dropped a 20 and a 10 in cash for payment and tip. He got up and made his way to the restroom. There was a men's and women's room. Nukde went into the men's room. Hands shaking, he drew the 9mm pistol from his pants and thumbed off the safety. He was going to shoot her. He was going to have to. She was too much of a liability. He should have choked her out while she was unconscious in Korea. The door opened and Hyun entered and locked the door behind her. She wore a relaxed, dark wine-red maternity dress with her leather purse over her left shoulder. Her hand rested on top of the purse innocently. She didn't look ready to murder him, so Nookdae lowered his aim. What, what do you want? he asked in Korean. You like this diner because there are no security cameras here, said Hyun. But there are security cameras across the street. Did you kill Stephen Lee and Cho Yu? Nookdae asked. Yes. Hyun answered coldly without her expression changing even a little. I need you to get me a meeting with the family. Why? Nukde breathed. Because they left me to die, she answered. Stephen Lee and Cho Yu are the only ones who need to die if you can just tell me where the meeting is located. I already screwed up by giving you that list, Nukde shook his head. No, you're going to try to take everyone out at once, and I won't let you. This ends here, Kashi. He raised the pistol to her head. Like a spider, Hyun grabbed Nookdae's gun in his hand. What do you think you're doing? Hyun asked. He tried to pull the trigger, but he couldn't. Her tiny ring finger had slid into the inch of space between the trigger and the trigger guard. He kept trying to pull the trigger or pull the gun away, but they were just playing tug-of-war with the weapon. She had a death grip on the thing, and he couldn't shake her. Gushy! He aimed the gun at her stomach. You choose how badly this goes, but there's no instance where you win this. You fool, Hyun scoffed with her other hand inside her purse. I've already won. The silenced twenty-two pistol in her purse went off three times. Three bleeding targets spread through the fabric of Nookday's clothes. His fight on the other end of the nine-millimeter relinquished before he slipped and fell down. He gasped for breath as he gaped at her. She withdrew the twenty-two from her purse. It had been inside a plastic bag that captured the casings but left melted holes in the plastic. She pulled the gun from the bag and lowered its aim to his temple. Good to see you again, Nook Day, Hyun said. She crouched to pick up the casing, then put it and the gun back inside the bag and into the leather purse. She flipped it so the holes were facing away from the front angle where it rested. She left the bathroom and went back to her table. Hyun drank her coffee and ate a biscuit contentedly before the police arrived to clear the building out. Holy shit! David said as an ambulance team wheeled the body from the restroom on a stretcher. That guy went into the bathroom right after you. Did you hear anything? I didn't hear anything at all, Hyun said. That's what we get for taking a detour to Nashville on the way home, David said. The restaurant owner apologized to everyone and had the staff bag the food patrons wanted to keep before sending everyone away. 
The police asked them a few questions to which Hyun became selectively quiet. She could tell David thought it was odd, but she didn't trust the police because they didn't trust her. They could smell that she wasn't right most times, but being pregnant has its advantages. The two were able to leave the scene without being considered suspects in a random cold-blooded homicide. A week after Hyun and David returned home, Bomber contacted her to let her know if she could meet him for two hours on the following Saturday at 10 a.m., she could have the honors of taking out another of her targets very easily. You're sure? Hyun asked. Totally, I've got this one. You're going to love it, Bomber replied. Am I ever going to get that nude photo? I'm eight months pregnant. Even better, upside down smiley face. So, see you Saturday? Bye. Hyun told David she had a hair appointment scheduled for Saturday at 10. He said that was fine. He was going to try to get a few odd jobs done while she went. If she had said she booked a doctor's appointment, he would have tried to come with her. A two-hour hair appointment would only bore him. She arrived at Bomber's apartment in Arlington right at 10. She was curious how he planned to do this on such short notice without being anywhere near any of their targets. When he opened the door, she smelled an odd odor. It was like three-week-old pizza and beer smell. Sorry for the mess, he apologized as he let her inside. Just finished cleaning, sort of. Bomber's apartment had little in the way of furnishings. He had a really nice couch across from a large flat-screen television. A full surround sound system had been rigged throughout the living room, and the whole setup was connected to his computer. Hyun cocked her brow to see how much sauce stained the counters. There were three trash bags on the side deck that were stuffed with pizza boxes and beer bottles. That explained the smell that lingered throughout the place. What did you want to show me? Hyun asked. Okay, okay, you're going to love this, Bomber repeated as he led her to the couch. He sat her down and put an Xbox controller into her hands. So I might have programmed an exact replica of the park with the Unreal Engine where your buddy Simon Lamb in Seattle is going to be having a ceremonial ribbon cutting here in about 45 minutes real time. I'll have you practice for the next 30 minutes or so. There's some organization he's part of unveiling a bronze statue of Theodore Johnson, this awesome black activist dude from the 70s. Simon Lamb paid the commission to the artist and the two of them have the honors of cutting the opening ribbon. What am I practicing? Hyun asked. So I asked myself if it's possible to hack a Tesla. Bomber grinned from ear to ear. It is possible to hack a Tesla, if you want to badly enough. He wiggled his eyebrows charmingly. And for a more equitable future, concluded Dan Parsons, the chairman for the Gextra Foundation for Equality and Justice. I'll hand off the scissors here to our good buddy Simon Lamb and give him the honors. None of this would be possible without Mr. Lamb, and none of it would be possible without the support of athletes like Mr. Jones who set an example for our fine community here in Seattle. Dan Parsons shook Simon Lamb's hand as the two paused in mid-smile and handshake to look at the cameras. Parsons moved to Kirk Jones, a basketball player for the Seattle Redhawks. They shook hands in the same manner as he'd done with Lamb. One of Parsons' assistants gave him the scissors, which he took and gave to Simon Lamb with a nod. As Parsons stepped back, there were several cries of panic from people down the bicycle path. Simon Lamb had the scissors to the ribbon when out of nowhere, and possibly, to the absolute horror of every one of the 45 spectators and media staff present, a blue Tesla Model S blasted through him at 112 miles per hour before banking directly into the waters of Elliott Bay. A crowd of horrified pedestrians and onlookers watched Simon Lamb give a series of sputtering gasps from his twisted form 45 yards from where he'd been. 
before he died in a series of painful death spasms. The back trunk of the Tesla remained in the air over the surface of the water with the hazard lights blinking, so spelled the end of Pak Chi, the silent killer. Back at Bombers, Hyun high-fived Bomber as the video feed of the Tesla flashed blue on the screen from the lost connection. She gave him the controller back, then paid him a handsome amount of money for his troubles. Hyun and David were married on May 16, 2015, a month before the baby was due. It was a wonderful day, for the most part. They rented a park and had David's family occupy the gazebo next to where the ceremony took place. Marcy and a few of the girls and David's friends all joined the party. Everyone had a fantastic time, until Cho Chu arrived. Hyun saw her watching from the trees across the lake while the preacher they had hired was reading his lines from the Bible. She had a clear shot. If she had wanted to kill Hyun, she could have. Once everyone was leaving for the reception that was being held at a wine venue across town, Cho Chu, better known by her American name, China Che, walked right up to Hyun and David. She wore a yellow dress with a matching yellow headband, purse, and slippers. Hyun was prepared to take evasive measures, but Tina only gave David a card congratulating them on their unity. Hyun stared daggers at Tina. There was no reason for her to be here or to be interfering with Hyun's life except that she knew what Hyun was up to. She was trying to put a stop to Hyun's suddenly wayward activities. But Tina was a professional, and possibly just as dangerous as Hyun herself. Hyun and I go way back, Tina said to David. We used to kill the weekends in Seoul. Stop this now, Hyun said in Korean. I'm challenging you to a duel. No more backstabbing. One on one. You and me. Tina gave her a sad look before she turned her attention to David. I'm throwing a party in New York in November. I'd like you to meet me there. Hyun and I need to catch up on a few things. All expenses will be paid by my assistant. Wow, that sounds great, said David, clueless. Hyun knew David liked Korean women so she also knew that a pretty Korean woman in a dress would be able to charm him without much effort. It would be my honor to host my dear old friend. Tina put her arm around Hyun's bare shoulder above her wedding dress. She waited for some kind of sting, the stick of a needle filled with poison, a dagger in the back, but none came. We have so much to catch up on, Hyun, but it seems like you're busy, so I should let you get back to your reception. She could come, right? David asked. Hyun rolled her eyes, trying to come up with excuses for why that wouldn't or couldn't be possible, but thankfully Tina beat her to the punch. I would love to, but I actually have a meeting this evening back home. I really just wanted to see Hyun on her wedding day. You look just as beautiful as we both used to imagine we'd be when we were kids. Tina gave a fake sniff and wiped the corner of her eye with her index finger. Hyun was about to break form and see if she could execute a finishing move on the woman before Tina gave them a quick bow. It was truly an honor to see you, and to meet your lovely husband, Hyun. Have a wonderful rest of your day. She flew all the way to Texas to give you a card and invite us to a party? David asked. Hyun turned to him, displaying through her eyes that he did not perform to her liking during the Tina Che exchange. He was intuitive enough to understand that she knew how he had melted for a pretty face, but that was all he saw. David didn't know that he was a quick gesture away from death, he didn't know that the insinuation of her sheer presence was an actual physical threat to all the two of them had built over the last year. The problem that rapidly unfurled over the course of the evening was that there was no way out. Tina's party would be held six months from then, and not only would she and David be there, but it would be Tina's final night on this earth. 
Patrick Grayson was born two weeks after the wedding. It was a painful birth that eventually required a C-section. Hyun was too small of a person for Patrick to emerge safely the normal way. It took her two months to feel well again, and even then she was only at half her strength. While she lay in bed for weeks at a time with the baby, she had Bomber send her everything he could find on Tina Che in her estate in New York City. She studied relentlessly between feedings when David was out looking for work. He eventually landed a miracle job across town at a startup comic book studio. The pay was average for a new hire, but he couldn't have asked for more. He got to draw his own ideas for concepts, was included in storyboarding, and even assisted in the graphic arts department. A great job, married to his dream wife, and a newly born son, 2015 was a great year for David. Once Hyun was feeling better from the recovery, she had to start working out again. She really didn't want to, but she thought of Tina and how she had broken all the post-retirement rules of the family to seek her out. The woman had threatened them. She had threatened Hyun, David, and Patrick, and that idea alone got Hyun to pump iron. In addition to this, she also had a plan. She and David would go to the party, and it was there that a horrible accident would befall Tina. It would be so sad when Hyun's oldest friend would find herself lacking the vitality to live another day. Hyun would wipe that flirtatious smile she gave David off her face if it was the last thing she ever did. 8. November arrived in what felt like the blink of an eye. Months of workout, planning, and preparation had passed in a blur. They left Patrick with David's parents for the weekend. Hyun paid for Bomber's plane ticket, expenses, and lodgings in New York while she and David arrived at their hotel the night before Tina's party. Have you seen Tina Che's bodyguard? Dreamboat, Bomber texted her. It's a concern, Hyun texted. The dreamboat part or that you might have to destroy that beautiful face? Just look at his Instagram photos. Bomber dropped a bunch of glamour shots of Tina Che's Russian bodyguard, Jamie Jones, getting in and out of the water on the beach, showing off his six-pack and big muscles. Guy can throw me around anytime he wants. I thought you were straight, Hyun replied with a smirk as David snored from the bed next to her. At this point it's art, Hyun. If Michael B. Jordan asks me to dance, I'll dance. How do you feel about the building's surveillance and security system? Hyun asked. I can tell you a couple of things about the security system, but I won't know for sure until I get inside. I can tell you she's using an attack and defense CTF to lock down her facility. Any security system that requires an OG decrypting process like this one is going to have some surprises for me. You'll be able to crack it, right? Haven't found a defense I can't hack, but it might take some time. As long as I have an active connection and my smartphone, I'll be okay. I'll be there at 7.30 in the evening tomorrow. Good luck. Good luck to you. Come back alive so you can pay me. I would hope you would remember who you're talking to. God, I love when you do that. Night Bomber. Good night, Hyun. Hyun wore a gorgeous emerald green dress with a halter top that wrapped around her neck and descended down her figure to a maxi lower skirt. She wore a green headband and pointed toe Mary Jane heels that matched her dress. While her bare legs emerged from the slip when she walked, it was impossible to see the stretchy yoga boxers she wore. She had a lethally sharp 5-inch blade tucked in a sheath braced to her outer thigh beneath her skirt. In her purse was her modified half by 28 Sig Silence Beretta 7122 pistol. There were eight additional preloaded heel-release magazines in perfectly fit pouches that were sewn into the walls of her purse, each with eight rounds. Also, keeping everything packed nicely within her purse were three of Patrick's teddy bears, each stuffed with wads of C4 that were wrapped with cardboard containing 20 steel ball bearings. 
A different car key was velcroed to each barrel like a grenade pin. David looked awestruck when he saw her. You look amazing. He wore a regular suit he usually wore to other people's weddings. David was never much for fashion or dressing up. Thank you, Hyun said. They took a cab to the apartment building on Park Avenue, got out, and entered to find that the lobby was full of the building's patrons in formal dress. A large banquet with live music was being held downstairs for everyone who lived in the building. Expensive champagne was passed out to everyone. Waiters were coming and going with different meals in hand. A man took Hyun and David's coats and a waiter took them to a table. Before Hyun could sit down, Tina emerged from the crowd to grab her arm. Oh, finally! She pulled Hyun away from David toward the center of the room. David shrugged and sat down, oblivious as the waiter placed a glass of champagne before him. We have so much to catch up on. Hyun followed Tina who was wearing a black bodycon dress with expensive heels. Hyun could barely keep up with her. She pulled her to the elevators and pushed Hyun hard into the elevator door next to hers. She caught herself and both tapped their elevator button. 76th floor, see you there. The two stepped into the elevator. When Tina arrived at the top, she hurriedly walked past her armed guards through her expensive New York flat. Kill her when she arrives. She stepped through the security door to the entry quarters that contained a guest room with a table for tea. The window outside overlooked the whole of Manhattan. The elevator next to Tina's arrived about 15 seconds after Tina's. The guards heard the elevator ding open, but Hyun, the woman they were told to execute on sight, didn't step off. As the two approached, they kept their rifles trained on the interior of the elevator. They saw no one within, but when they looked down, all they saw was a weird pink teddy bear. The elevator Tina had used arrived and Hyun stepped off to see two guards Tina had intended to sick upon her writhing in pain with the ball bearings cratered painfully throughout their skin. The fire alarm went off for about five seconds before Bomber shut it down. Hyun withdrew her twenty-two and ended the two men. She continued toward the first security door. Hyun tapped her earpiece. Bomber, are you there? Yeah, working on that first door. This is really irritating, he replied. Got it. Hyun dropped her gun back into her purse while stepping left to the side of the door. The red light over the security pad flashed to green. The moment the door opened, a man with a pistol raised stepped through. Hyun grabbed his arm and swirled him to the ground, shaking the pistol from his grasp. She stepped on his neck with the point of her heel to his agonized cries before kicking his thirty-two into her opposing hand to shoot the two guards who burst through the threshold. Using the torque of her leg and the function of her heel, Hyun broke the fallen man's neck with the heavy press of strength, the sharp twist of her thigh, and the tight pull of his arm. She did all of this in seconds. Dropping the man's arm, she stepped through the doorway to the grand salon of the flat. The windows viewed out to the Hudson River. A million lights filled the spaces between the automatic blinds that gradually moved up and down on tracks. He unducked behind a bookshelf as one of Tina's henchmen in a nice gray suit rounded the hall corridor ahead with an AK-47 at the ready. He blasted through the aisle where she had been. He emptied 30 rounds throughout the corridor until the gun clicked. While he reloaded, Hyun rounded the corner and fired the remaining five rounds in the 32 at the wall as she jogged through the grand salon. She dropped the empty gun and grabbed her headband. The moment the still-smoking AK-47 nozzle rounded into the doorway, Hyun kicked it aside, throwing the man to his left as she kept hold of the rifle. Hyun fluidly pulled the two halves of the garrote wire from her headband and laced it around the man's throat. He fired wildly as he choked. 
She crossed her forearms and pulled as hard as she could with the point of her knee pressed and folded into his back until his body went lax. Bomber sat in his rental car with his laptop on the armrest as he hacked the building across the street from him. He wore the same suit he had worn when he interviewed David, just to look nice in case someone walked by. He could hear the fire alarm blaring as he cracked the first door. He was able to shut it off within a few seconds. He had to look up some of the old-school decryption methods on his phone while implementing them with his computer. Before he could look up the second security door that led from the hall corridor to the kitchen, his phone flashed a low battery sign. He had an old charger with a chewed-up cord. It wasn't that he couldn't afford a better charge cable, but that he was lazy. The cord still technically worked, until the phone slipped off the edge of the computer. Bomber picked up the phone to see the cord still plugged in, but the frayed part was snapped completely off. Shit. He looked past his phone at the complicated lingo for the current CTF objective. There was no way he would be able to continue without being able to figure out what he was looking at. Second door, Bomber? Hyun asked in his ear. Yeah, yeah. He swallowed hard as he grabbed the door lever and waited for traffic to clear on the road. Give me a... give me a bit. I don't have a bit. I need to get through this door. Bomber could hear a struggle ensue on the other end. Working on it, Hyun. Bomber got out after the traffic had cleared with his fully charged laptop hooked in his left arm. He speed walked with his phone in his coat pocket toward the building where Hyun was currently. Phone charger? He held up the phone to anyone passing by. Anyone have a phone charger? People on the street leading to the building shook their heads at him. Bomber entered the apartment building on Park Avenue and waited between the patrons of the party. He was able to get one of the younger waiter guys to give him a charge cable. He plugged it into the wall and rested his computer at the punch table nearby. He breathed a sigh of relief as the phone slowly powered back on. Hey, someone yelled. Bomber looked up to see David Grayson, Hyun's husband, standing across from him on the other side of the punch bowl with an empty cup in hand. You're that kid that paid me 2,000 bucks to draw pictures of French bulldogs. What the hell are you doing here? I, um, I'm... He held up a hand, legit terror on his face as he pressed his thick glasses up his nose. What, are you following me or something? David scoffed. No, I... Bomber swallowed as he looked down at the computer that was giving him a 45-second time limit to make a move. It didn't have to be the right move, but if he didn't move quickly, he'd be booted from the server. Give me a minute to just... He had to forget David. He went down to his phone and pulled up his hacker decoder list and typed in the name of the CTF game. Yeah, 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 he repeated hurriedly as he typed in the bypass code and pressed enter. His heart flooded with relief as he tapped his earpiece. Got it, you're through. He turned around and looked left and right. You there? Hey, dick, David spread his arms. Care to explain what you're doing here and why you're following me? People now started to notice that there was some kind of commotion going on as Bomber tried to hear anything over the dull roar of the party. Now that Bomber had a little bit of time, as David rounded the table, he was able to come up with a plan. Listen, David, I'm FBI. Okay, let's see some credentials, David demanded. Bomber gave him a fat grin and shook his head. What, you don't have it? No, I didn't bring it, said Bomber. You're an 18-year-old FBI agent that has no identification, David clarified. Sorry, I guess I'm incompetent. Didn't really expect to have to jack around and explain myself to you. David took a deep breath and held up a hand. Why are you following me and my wife? That's confidential, Bomber said. Confidential as in I'm part of an ongoing case? The fire alarms went off again as the lights flashed throughout the building. 
Bomber pressed a key on his laptop without taking his eyes from David's. The alarm turned off. Listen, David, you're in way over your head with this, so I recommend you go sit back at your table and pretend like I didn't have to come in here for a phone charger, cool? Why are you here? David demanded. He looked like he was losing his temper again. Bomber massaged his chin frustratedly. Is I'm FBI and I'm incompetent not good enough for you? He spread his arms. The fire alarm issued from overhead. Bomber pressed the button again and continued passively decoding the next CTF. David scooped his punch, then walked back to his table. I need to get through this door. Hyun had barely gotten the words out to Bomber when Jamie Jones, Tina's personal bodyguard, bull rushed her from the side. Her gun, several magazines, and her earpiece went flying over the cedar wooden floor of the Grand Salon. Jamie mounted her. He wore a tuxedo shirt with black suspenders that laced his massive shoulders. He shot his elbow toward her throat, but Hyun hooked an iron claw with her left hand into his neck and pulled him down into her chest as hard as she could. Jamie scooped her up, thrusting into her to hike himself to his feet, and then dropped her, slamming all 250 pounds onto her small body. All the air went from Hyun's stomach. She slid the blade from its sheath in her thigh and slammed it into Jamie's knee. He grabbed the blade, wrenched it from his thigh, and chucked it across the room. He reared back to punch her, but Hyun locked her heels behind his neck and pulled his head down into her chest again. Jamie tried to push up, but Hyun laced her arm around his. He switched arms to try to get up from the other way, but she put her opposite hand around his neck and swam her other arm in his to keep him pressed down on top of her. His bald head was beat red as he struggled, but she remained wrapped in him like a python. He tried to punch her from the side, but she threw her bare knee between his shoulder and her hip. Jamie tried to punch from the opposite side, but Hyun's other knee appeared under his strike, neutralizing him at every turn. Hyun looked like a frog, poised in an iron spring position as she kept Jamie in check. He got angry and thrashed. If he wasn't so big, she might have been able to contain him, but he wrangled himself free, shoving away from her. Hyun got to her feet, panting. Jamie elbowed a framed snake whip that was on the wall next to the bookcase, grabbed the handle, and unrolled the leather cord with a smirk upon his face. Hyun slowly made for her pistol on the floor to her left. The moment she went for it, Jamie skillfully snapped the gun away from her. He held up a finger and shook it back and forth while maintaining his grin. Ms. Tina has mentioned a lot about you. Jamie paced across from her, tossing the direction of the whip to his right for an easier strike later. She didn't mention you were so striking a person. Tina couldn't keep her mouth shut, so I'm here to shut it for her, Hyun said. Your former SFB. Correct, Jamie cocked his brow. A woman who does her research. I should be flattered to know you were looking me up. Jamie suddenly cracked the whip at her. Hyun was ready. She grabbed a vase from the shelf and covered her face. The vase shattered to pieces in her grip and sliced her fingers, but the instant before Jamie could reel the whip in with the flick of his wrist, Hyun grabbed hold of the frayed end and curled it around her fist. Jamie wrenched his arm back, pulling the cord taut between them. Jamie kicked his leg behind the other, and just as he went to wrench Hyun off her feet, she let go of the whip. He threw his arm back as Hyun dove for the AK-47 that was still clutched in the grasp of her last victim. Jamie snapped the whip at the gun before she could fix it upon him, the leather tip wrapping the wooden handguard. Jamie tugged it from her grasp, but she charged him. Like a cat, Hyun jumped six and a half feet into the air, wrapping her legs around Jamie's face and neck. She looped her right leg over her left and was able to grab her left leg from behind his shoulder, securing his head in a full leg lock. 
Jamie naturally tried to slam her to the floor, but only served to topple the two of them over. The fall was painful for Hyun, but she kept his chin hooked on the inside of her knee as he raged like an angry gorilla. The sounds he made from between her legs as she pulled tighter and tighter were monstrous. She pulled her leg as hard as she could as he began to scream. The veins in his scalp throbbed. If she was not so small and he was not so big, it might have taken less time, but it took nearly a solid minute of Jamie wheezing in a panic-stricken death throw before he finally succumbed to her triangle choke. Shoving Jamie's giant body off of her, Hyun's whole body ached as she got to her feet. She gathered her twenty-two in magazines. Hyun took a deep breath, heard the sound of footsteps in the hall ahead, then grabbed her second pink teddy bear. Lobbing it, Hyun took cover behind one of Tina's planters and pressed the unlock button. The ball bearing shot through the room like bullets. One ricocheted off the back of Hyun's shoulder blade, to which she winced in pain. She heard panicked voices from the room beyond the corridor. Hyun was not a forgiving attacker. She was ruthless and took ground when she could. She grabbed her final teddy bear and heaved it as hard as she could down the hall corridor, stepping over the debris and exposed apartment innards from the last explosion she had set off. The men from before screamed as she pressed the unlock button for her final piece of C4. She put the earpiece back on her ear and continued down the hall. Bomber, I'm here. Good, I was starting to worry, Bomber said. We got a problem. Your husband might be on to me. Break protocol and get David out of here as soon as you can get the last door, Hyun said. That might be difficult, Bomber said. I got eyes on David, but a lot of exits are blocked by goons. I can maybe get him out, but it leaves you on your own. I'll deal with it. How's the security door situation coming? Hyun asked. I have the next door open for you. I'm working on the bedroom, but it's a doozy. You'll have to give me time. Hyun drew her twenty-two and stepped over six bodies that had been taken by her explosions, three in the hall and three around the doorway to the kitchen where her teddy had landed as they scrambled to get away. Water pipes had burst from the bombs and were trickling water freely into the apartment below. The whole flat had been trashed. Every room looked like a massacre had taken place. Congratulations, Hyun, Tina called in Korean from the opposite end of the large kitchen that looked half fine, other than the ball bearings stuck in everything. You've won. You always won. You were always better prepared, better skilled, and just luckier than the rest of us, especially me. Hyun took cover behind everything she could find as she moved forward. Tina crossed the hall ahead. Hyun fired her twenty-two, but barely missed her. Her eyes scanned the way forward for traps. She saw the kitchen stove, noted that the burners were off. The refrigerator that was built into the wall paneling had only food and wine within. When Cal told me that he shot you off Inchin Bridge, I had not heard anything more satisfying in my life. To know that I was retired, and my greatest rival was now food for the fish in the Yellow Sea. It was a special moment. It was a moment that I knew had to be too good to be true. Cal was always a fool. He should have known that the only way to ensure your death would be to witness your brain splattering on the pavement. I knew even back then that if you had survived, it wouldn't be only Cal that paid the price. It would be all of us. And look where we are. You've killed all the family in America except me and Cal, and you're hunting me through my own apartment. If the family has sentenced me to die, said Hyun, then it's open season on the family. I have a son and a husband that I love. What wouldn't you do for the ones you love if their lives are threatened by the existence of your enemies? How cute, Hyun. You actually fell in love, even knowing that this was your biggest mistake. 
If you want any chance to save your husband, you should get out of here as quickly as you can, Tina chided. Hyun tapped her earpiece. Get David out of here, Bomber. I just got it, Bomber said. Hyun could hear him close his computer in the background. I'm on it, Hyun. Hyun hurried into the corridor leading to the master bedroom. She kept her twenty-two raised as she stepped down the hall. She inched down the corridor and rounded the corner to the bedroom to see Tina with a raised forty-four in her hand. Hyun barely ducked behind the doorway as a big chunk of it disappeared. Hyun ducked low and fired blindly around the corner with the twenty-two over her head until it clicked. She dropped the magazine by the heel release with her pinky and loaded another into the bottom of the pistol. She thumbed the hammer and moved away from the frame of the door. Just as she had expected, five more shots exploded holes in the wall where she had just been. Hyun dove across the doorway with the pistol aimed at the threshold, already firing through before she could process where Tina was located. She fired five bullets, snagging Tina's heel and elbow before Hyun rolled to her stomach by the washer and on the other side of the corridor. You bitch! Tina roared, charging for the doorway with hopes of ending Hyun before Hyun could do any more damage. Hyun grabbed hold of the dryer door and threw it open as hard as she could, slamming the metal door into Tina's forty-four and stomach as she rounded the corner. Hyun kicked Tina in the shin with her heel and, just as the dryer door bounced closed, fired two twenty-two bullets into her stomach and the final between her eyes. Tina staggered, the gun slipping from her hands as she tried to remain conscious. Her eyes were swimming weirdly in her skull as she fell down to one knee and collapsed like a house of cards. She trembled maddeningly before rolling over and choking on her own blood. Hyun got to her feet and dropped the magazine from her pistol, reloading it with another. She couldn't be too careful, but she slowly made her way through the flat toward the elevator. Everyone was dead. The sound of steadily flowing water filled the apartment from all the damage that had been done. Pressing the elevator down button, Hyun rode to the tenth floor, then hopped off and took the stairs the rest of the way. She re-entered the lobby to find the police talking to the patrons. They were in the process of both shutting down the party and evacuating the building from all the reports of explosions taking place on the 76th floor. Hyun exited out through the emergency exit at the back of the building. There were three men that had been placed there by Tina to kill her if she left that way, but none of them had actually expected Hyun to leave by that exit. When they did see her, they did a double take at the woman in the green dress that had just pushed the door open, and that was all they knew. Hyun had been prepared for them, and had lifted the twenty-two to put all three of the men down within seconds. She kept her hand on the pistol in her purse, but rounded the alleyway to Park Avenue. Hyun tapped her earpiece. Do you have David, Bomber? David was eating a slice of cake with an irritated look upon his face as he waited for Hyun to get back. With his laptop under his arm, Bomber inched his way around the room toward David. Finally, when he was within ten yards of Hyun's husband, he was able to grab his arm and crouch next to him. Listen, I'm going to explain. Bomber made a wishy-washy face. Some things, not everything, but I'm going to do my best to fill you in on what's happening. First, we gotta get out of here. David followed Bomber's head nod and glance at the glass front doors where three men in gray suits were casing the front while scanning the patrons. They're probably just Tina's security. They're definitely Tina's security, and that's why I gotta get you out of here. There's probably a parking garage we can get to from the stairs. Grab your little punch cup there and let's act like we're going for a refill. I'm not leaving without my wife, said David. The men in gray suits noticed them and uncrossed their arms. They started wading through the crowd toward them. Dude, Hyun Chu Lee is like my best friend, and I want you to trust that she would want me to get you out of here right now. Bomber pulled on David's arm. 
David looked taken aback. Uh, okay, I didn't know she had any friends, but I guess... I'll explain it all, buddy, Bomber said, shaking his head. The French Bulldogs, why I'm here tonight, all of it. But right now, those guys are coming for us. He bit his lip and pulled David harder. David left the punch glass and went with him. Bomber pushed through the patrons toward the stairs and elevators. There was a big table with a chocolate fountain and a big ice sculpture of a cupid that blocked the goons from them as they were able to follow the hall corridor across from the lobby to the stairs. The men rounded the table and followed the wall to the lobby just as David and Bomber went through the door to the stairwell. The two were at the bottom of the platform beyond a single set of steps when the men in gray suits entered the stairwell and drew their pistols. You two, don't move, the man in the middle of the three ordered. David and Bomber froze with their hands raised. Hey boss, we got him. Hey, boss. Guys, said Bomber with his hands raised. I don't know who you think you've got, but me and this guy? We're in love. Bomber thumbed between himself and David. What? David glared at him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Bomber uncharacteristically latched onto David with his laptop still clutched in one hand. Like, I don't know what you guys were thinking, but we came down here to do, like, gay stuff. Like, seriously gay. So if you don't like seeing gay people do gay things, you guys might want to skedaddle. The cops are here, one of the men asked while listening to his earpiece, looking around. Fucking hell, he wiped his nose. Forget these two, boss isn't answering, let's get out of here, another man said. They lowered their weapons and hurried toward the parking garage, leaving Bomber holding on to David in the stairwell. <laughs> Bomber removed himself from David, who looked both confused and disturbed. What do you say I buy you a drink, David? The two left the parking garage at the street level and began jogging to get away from the scene as police sirens echoed in the distance. They found a crowded sushi bar a few blocks away where they could lay low for a few hours until the heat died down. Do you have David, Bomber? Hyun asked in his ear. Yeah, we're just going to a sushi place around the corner. His voice raised comically like the two hadn't just been threatened by armed security guards. Want to join us? Is that my wife? David asked. He was holding his phone while waiting for her to respond to his spam of texts. Just keep David busy. I'll meet you there in 45 minutes. Once they got their drinks, which were just fruity margaritas and oversized martini glasses that were part of the sushi bar theme, Palmer took a deep breath and placed his hands on the table between them. So, I'm something of a private investigator. I'm guessing you don't have a license for that either, David asked. No, I mean... Bomber waved his hand and licked his lips, trying to find the words. The waitress brought them their margarita drinks. Fortunately for Bomber, he was so overweight that he looked at least 21, so no one asked for his ID. I'm something of a child prodigy when it comes to hacking. I kind of figured when you started wiping security cameras on the fly. David raised an eyebrow. Still doesn't explain why you paid me to drive out to Colorado for no apparent reason. I don't know how to say this, David, but I've known your wife since she was Hyun Chu Lee. She hired me because there are people from her past who might be interested in finding her, and I'm supposed to monitor online activity to make sure that never happens. That sounds expensive as shit, David said. Oh, dude, your wife is totally loaded. You have no idea... Uh, probably shouldn't have said that. Bomber sipped from his margarita. David looked suddenly dejected. I didn't realize she had been keeping so much from me. You didn't sleep with her as well, did you? Bomber looked taken aback. Are you kidding me? Trust me, I've tried. You're the only dude that gets into those iron pants. Probably should be mad, but everything has been so strange, I really don't know what to say. Can you explain Colorado to me? Eh, Bomber's eyes darted back and forth. 
might be best to have her explain that to you. These people, said David, are they dangerous? Palmer took another sip of his margarita without looking at David. He put the giant martini glass back down on the table and swallowed as he stared seriously at the table for a long time. Yeah, David, Palmer nodded at last. Yeah, they're dangerous, but not half as dangerous as Hyun Grayson. That right there is something I've never been more certain of in my life. And if I ever, ever, found out that she was after me, nah man, I'd just shoot myself right in the head if I found out I was on her list. Wait, so she's like, before you ask me anything else, David, Bomber looked David in the eyes. You should talk to Hyun. I'm not a good liar, so I can't tell you I'm an FBI agent or that I'm not part of some seriously crazy shit, but trust me when I say that Hyun must be the one to tell you what she's really up to. Hyun never arrived at the sushi bar, so Bomber eventually paid the tab, and David took a cab back to the hotel. Hyun wasn't in the hotel room, all of her things were gone. David frustratedly tried to call her, but her phone was off. He sat on the edge of the bed with his head in his hands, but then saw the note on the edge of the table. He picked it up and read it. David, please destroy this note after reading. I love you more than you will ever know, and you and I will meet again soon. For now, I have to do something very important, and it's best that you're not near me while I do this. It's kind of a big job that I think you will one day understand I had to do this. You will know it later, all of it. Just remember that I love you, and I will come back to you, or bring you back to me. Take Patrick and your parents to somewhere safe, and do not bring the device of any kind. Some mountain place, if you can. Stay there for one week, and then you can come home. Everything will be back to normal, and I will explain all everything to you. There is enough money now in the bank for you to fly back on the next flight to North Texas. It's important that you leave immediately. Hyun Grayson David stood up, looking around the room in a panic. She's not coming back? He whispered. Shit. He gathered his things and quickly left the hotel as she instructed. The next flight back to Texas was very expensive, but when David checked the bank account, there was an additional $10,000 deposited within. He shook his head as he confirmed with the lady at the front desk of the JFK airport. They were able to exchange his return flight for a little credit, but it was still a $500 flight. He got a little rest on the plane, but not much. He was too worried about all the things he had no control over concerning Hyun. Cal sat in his smoking room with his many models and friends around him, relaxing and enjoying themselves. His phone rang in his jacket pocket. He answered it. Anyaseo, boss. What did you do? Muna asked from the other end. Cal took a long pull from his cigar. I did what I had to. Kashi has killed every single member of the family in the United States. Obviously, I'm next. It's about self-preservation. This is the second time you've taken action against my wishes. By executing this bounty, you have sealed your fate. Muna, on the other end, took a deep breath. Anyanaseo, Cal. Cal lowered his phone. He had felt good about his decision to place a bounty on the head of Kashi, now known as Hyun Grayson. The Assassin's Guild would make short work of her for an $800 million reward. What was there to worry about? 9. Maria Vonsdale remembered the morning her neighbors moved in. She had watched the newlywed couple move two carloads of things from an apartment, and that's all they had to their name. Over the coming weeks, she would watch them have furniture delivered, appliances, mattresses. 
A few months after the baby was born, she watched the young man and his pretty wife lock up the house and drive away. Only the man came back a few days later, and he didn't look happy. He quickly gathered several suitcases and didn't come back, at least not that Maria could tell. She wasn't always at the windows, watching all the neighbors do their business. The couple frequently pulled their car into the garage, so for all she knew they could have come home in the middle of the night. Either way, Maria noticed in the morning at around 9.30 that two men arrived in a red Volvo car. Another vehicle, a yellow Lamborghini, pulled up behind it. That was very strange because it was such a flashy car and it was a modest lower middle class neighborhood. Within two more minutes, a party of cars, all full of people, arrived at the household. Maria couldn't explain why, but it all felt wrong. All at once, everyone emerged from their vehicles, like they were part of a SWAT team or something. They had guns. Maria put her hand to her mouth and withdrew her smartphone from her pocket. She had no cellular service, which had never happened before. Ever since they put the tower a few blocks over, she'd always had excellent reception. The men descended upon the house. She heard gunfire. Insane, wild amounts of gunfire. Just out of pure self-defense, Maria hurried to the closet on the far end of the house and put her hands over her ears while desperately trying to call someone. It was like a shootout, like one of those old cowboy movies, but in modern times with modern-day weaponry. All Maria could know was how utterly loud it was. Explosions erupted. She could smell smoke, even in the closet. At last, the gunfire ceased. There were several more pops that erupted from the place, but Maria couldn't tell what they were. She pushed open the closet door and slowly made her way to the window. All of the cars remained parked outside, but the building next door smoked heavily. The most insane thing Maria had ever witnessed happened after that. Hyun Grayson, Maria Vonsdale's neighbor's pretty wife, emerged from the house with a duffel bag in one hand and an AR-15 resting on her other shoulder. She wore a sky-blue blouse with a plaid tie fastened at her collar, wore a navy-blue sweater over that, and wore a plaid skirt that was unacceptably short. She wore knee-high socks and polished black shoes. Had the girl not been carrying a massive rifle away from a giant shootout, Maria might have thought she was just a student late for school. Maria watched Hyun walk out to the Lamborghini, toss the duffel bag and AR-15 into the vehicle's tiny trunk, and then get into the driver's seat. Maria frantically got her phone camera ready and took a video of her taking off. There was no license plate on the front of the car that had been facing her, so all she got was the yellow blur of the vehicle. It wasn't the police who arrived to interrogate her, it was the FBI. They would spend the next four hours probing her every thought and memory of the five-minute event that occurred next door. Somehow, impossibly, all of the fourteen men who had entered that house were now lying dead within it. The only person who had any information as to why they were there, how they got there, and what had taken place was Maria Vonsdale. Dozens of people heard the shootout, but no one saw the men enter except Maria, and no one else saw Hyun Grayson leave. Maria insisted that Hyun was the woman she saw, but hated the look the agents were giving her. They found it hard to picture a 30-year-old mother in a schoolgirl uniform leaving the scene of a major crime with an AR-15, only to drive off into the sunset in a yellow Lamborghini that couldn't be identified. It was one of those things that was almost too bogus to be true, but also too specific and strange to be fiction. Since Maria's statement was the only thing they had, it would be filed, but without more information it left them with little more than breadcrumbs.
The engine of the Lamborghini squealed as Hyun kicked the car back above 80 miles per hour upon leaving the Baton Rouge city limits. She heard her burner phone vibrate under the armrest. It would only be David or Bomber, and it was Bomber. She had to slow down enough so she could actually hear him over the engine. Hey, she said. Well, you've certainly stirred the pot this time, he said. There's no cleaning up what's been done so far, and the feds are definitely interested in having a long conversation with Hyun Grayson. My hands are somewhat tied, even from my end. But you can do what I asked, inquired Hyun. This is the last one for America before we meet in Seville. Bomber was hesitant for once. I can, but I can only do it one time. Maybe. Acquiring military equipment is one thing, but hacking any branch of the U.S. military is... ill-advised at best. He unrolled her eyes closed and opened patiently as she kept her attention on the road. Can you do it? Bomber clicked his tongue. Sure, I can hack an army base if you want, and I'll even do it just for you. The price, however... Hyun sighed. A risque photo of some kind might find its way into your inbox by the end of this. She heard him clap in the background. That's all the incentive I need to ruin my credentials across the board and possibly flee the country, along with the millions of dollars you're going to give me by the end of this. Nothing has changed, Bomber, but don't forget that I've basically been paying your every expense since I got into the country. That is true, said Bomber. Assuming you're still on schedule, I'll have the boat delivered to the set location tomorrow afternoon. You are confident this plan will work. It's almost a guarantee they'll know you're coming. One hundred percent, he unsmirked. Jeez, I've never been one hundred percent sure of anything before. I'll chat with you tomorrow morning, Bomber. Hyun said, bid him farewell, and continued driving east. She stopped in Jacksonville, Florida, and got a hotel room with cash. It was 11.15 after she finished taking a shower. She had brought eight peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, and had just finished eating the sixth. Eating out would be dangerous with the hit Cal had put on her, but it was unlikely that they would have expected her to be in Florida so quickly after being in Texas. She would need to change cars in the morning. Her mind swam with objectives, processes to remain in stealth. She had already given Bomber one of her credit cards to use for an online order in Alabama. Her bank and credit records would be hacked. Many would believe she was there, but most of the wise assassins would know it was a diversion. The only insane thing would be knowing that a small army would be waiting for her at the gates of Cal's estate. But that was okay. Hyun would not be deterred, and bigger armies had been brought down with less. She was able to have Bomber hack her a Tesla to replace the flashy Lamborghini. The drive from Jacksonville was truly nerve-wracking. Cal knew she was coming for him. He even knew that she was on her way. It would be foolish to assume there was no possibility of her being killed in a hail of bullets by the end of the evening, but she remembered her training. She remembered the ice cube. Muna had taught them directly about imagining a perfectly three-dimensional ice cube the size of your person. The more one investigates the cube, the more detailed it becomes. Meditate upon the ice cube for long enough and you become cold. Your worries disappear. Your mind and thoughts go away. All that is left is training and the objective. Hyun arrived in Miami at 4.30 in the afternoon. The sun was at a perfect height to cast its orange afternoon light between the spotty cloud cover. The clouds were dispersing from their daily afternoon shower that was one of the many constants of Florida. Crazies, shirtless dudes, and humidity were a few of the other constants. Cal lived on the North Beach area of Miami Beach, on Indian Creek Island. Everything about this mission would be difficult. 
there was a single bridge onto the island that was monitored by a gate guard. However, there was also the pier entrance to the property, which would of course be equally monitored by Cal's men. In addition to Cal knowing she was on her way, having only two very visible entrances complicated things. But no one ever said she could only have one choice. Cal would be preoccupied, to say the least, by the time she set foot on his island. Hyun crossed a number of bridges to get to Miami Beach. She drove through neighborhoods of wealthy homes to reach her target point. She parked on the street, grabbed her duffel bag, and walked through the jungle-like overgrowth between the houses to reach one of the many personal piers in the backyard. Bomber had made sure that the occupants of this piece of land were not in. He had them chasing some random citywide raffle winner program he had pulled out of his ass. They would discover it was bullshit and come back, but she had just enough time to get onto the small motorboat he'd paid to have delivered to that pier directly. Lowering her duffel bag into the bottom of the boat, Hyun slowly got inside and pulled the thick rope from over the dock post. She put in her earpiece and unzipped the duffel bag. Hyun withdrew and clutched the 300 Win Mag rifle in her arms as she clicked on the two-way earpiece. Almost showtime, Hyun said. She heard the crackle of Bomber putting on his headset. Okay, he sighed, knowing he had a big job ahead of him. Give me a few minutes. I'll tell you when we're in business, but as soon as this goes down, I have to GTFO, like, immediately. I'll have about five minutes before the FBI comes and busts down my door like the Unabomber. If I can get out, I'll be meeting you in Seville. Right, Hyun said. Bomber took a heavy breath on the other end. Please don't die, Hyun. Hyun looked back and forth for a few seconds, then looked down. I won't. You are so fucking cocky. I wish you could see the chatter I see on the dark web. Everyone knows about you. I mean, they don't know what you're doing, but nobody puts an $800 million bounty on someone without turning heads. I guess I should be flattered, said Hyun. It means there are like two dozen bounty hunters hovering around Miami. When they find out what we've done, everyone in town will be after you, Bomber said. I'm not afraid, Hyun said. Uh, are you saying you're not afraid of encountering people who want to kill you, or you're not afraid of dying, because I know this is the dude who shot you. You're not gonna go all Clint Eastwood in-game suicide on me, are you? No, Hyun smiled. Well, you're the boss, Hyun. I hope you know what you're doing, he said. Hyun took a deep breath, preparing herself mentally. You've been a really great friend to me, Bomber. No, 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 no. Don't say shit like that. That's that Clint Eastwood shit I was talking about. I'll see you in Seville, Hyun. Good luck. Over and out. He took off his headset and shut off the feed. It was go time. She loaded the five-round magazine into the magazine well and pulled the bolt handle to load a round into the chamber. Setting the scope for 1,000 feet, she aimed at the pier in the distance that was the entrance to Cal's property. He was too far away for her to expect to hit anything, but she could see what was going on while she waited for the go-ahead from Bomber. Five men in suits with earpieces paced the property. All of them were armed in some capacity. Hyun was good with a rifle, but the waves churning beneath the hull of the motorboat mixed with the distance made it nearly impossible to accurately strike a target from three football fields away. That was the precise distance from the protrusion of land where she was to Indian Creek Island. All right, Hyun, said Bomber. The internet and cellular devices have been jammed in your three-mile radius. Emergency services won't be able to respond to incoming calls. You have 30 seconds until that place looks like a war zone. Bye! 
she could hear him gathering his things to flee his location on the other end before he shut off the feed. Hyun pulled the cord for the motorboat and kicked the engine to life. She took the boat halfway out and killed the engine. With the wind mag raised, Hyun got a bead on a target, and that's when everything went insane. 10. Cal had known that Kashi would be on her way. He had hired 20 professionally trained black ops mercenaries to cover the interior of the building, but there were still dozens of men that Cal knew and trusted floating through the estate who would be happy just to get their hands on the reward money Cal was offering. Sitting in his study that was on the underground floor of the house, he drank a glass of scotch while watching the news. From Cal's perspective, Kashi would either flee and come back at a later time, or she would already be on her way and arrive within the next 24 hours. This thought entered his mind every 15 minutes, and every time it hit, he checked his breast pocket for the 32 he kept laced under his armpit. He had just touched his chest to feel the shape of the pistol under his blazer when the security radio crackled. We've got a rogue Tesla headed for us. It blew through the gate guard arm. Headed right for the house. Cal quickly got up and hurried up the stairs. He continued to the second floor and peered out the window to see a black Tesla veering down the road to the left at 90 miles per hour. A crew of eight hurried out to the front lawn, crouched, and began unloading their different high-end rifles. Cal's eyes widened. He had time to register that two drones were in the process of rocketing toward him. He could hear them like screaming banshees, and then they hit. It was an instant shock to the system as an explosion rocked the entire estate. The whole building began to collapse upon itself beneath Cal. Someone knew where he stayed regularly. One of the drones had gone through the ground floor window to strike the hall corridor just above where Cal had been in the underground room. The second drone had erupted right in the center of the building's front. The men outside who weren't obliterated by the massive blaze were struck by the Tesla that continued until it wrecked into the garage building under Cal. Ears ringing, lungs full of dust, Cal recovered himself amidst the wreckage. He heard bullets erupting through the air in the distance. They were high-capacity rifle rounds, like a sniper shot. He swam through the debris and found his demolished kitchen where the nose of the Tesla was peering through the wall beyond the oven. Water flowed freely from the water pipes in the walls from the sink. Sir, are you okay? One of his men with an AK-47 laced about his chest asked. A split second later, his head exploded. Flecks of blood sprayed all over Cal's face. As the man's body fell, he was able to see, through the broken window where the shot had come from, none other than Kashi in her adorable kill uniform moving low up the back lawn alongside the lap pool with a 300 Winchester Magnum raised. She had an arsenal of other weaponry attached to her person like she was going to war. Cal was just able to duck before her bullet ricocheted off the wall into the refrigerator behind him. Scrambling over his guard's body, he grabbed the radio from his waist and hit the button on the side. The back! The back! She's at the back! He yelled, tugging the AK-47 from the putrid mess of the upper part of the man's body. He had time enough to cock the rifle, then fire at the back door seconds before Kashi could enter. Getting to his feet, he stepped over the busted cabinets around the kitchen island. Cal stayed low as he tried to get to the opposite corridor for better cover. Just as he dove for the hallway leading to the bottom floor bedroom, an M433 HEDP grenade round from a grenade launcher clacked across the hardwood floor behind him. The house shook. The heat set his backside ablaze. Several of his men rounded the corner and hauled him into the bedroom before hurrying down the hall corridor. 
Most of them were older, but Cal grabbed a 23-year-old kid by the back of his armored vest and hauled him into the bedroom. They're fucked, he whispered. We need to get out of here as soon as possible. An insane shootout began throughout the kitchen. Bullets tore through the plaster wall between the rooms until an explosion from one of Gashi's grenades took a chunk out of the corner. Cal and the man fled to the bedroom opposite to the back room that had been obliterated by one of Kashi's drones. The two clambered over the rubble of the wall onto the soft Florida grass of his front yard. There were at least five writhing bodies in the yard and on the driveway from the Tesla and drone strikes that had leveled his home. Cal and the young man scrambled into a run toward the young man's Lexus that was parked on the side of the road. Before they could reach the vehicle, one of her M233 rounds bounced off the hood of the vehicle before erupting, sending the two men to their backs. The man, who was really just a boy to Cal, was filled with bullets. Cal crawled on his hands and knees toward a big Ford truck. He braced the AK-47 to his stomach and made sure it was loaded with the safety off. Several of his men rounded the side of the house only to be taken almost instantly by Kashi's demonic accuracy. She had always been like that. The family would frequently play airsoft or paintball games at their hideout. No one ever got Kashi before Kashi got them. Kashi! Cal yelled and rose from behind the cabin of the truck. He could see her in the yard looking down the sights of her AR-15 with the custom M203 mount. I really didn't think you'd survive. Obviously. Hyun put a 556 round in the frame of the truck inches from his face. Cal instinctively ducked, sucking in a terrified breath. It's just that... I only thought I was doing what anyone else would do. What if it was me who'd been cast out and you found me? Would you not have done your duty to put me down? No, because family means family. Hyun kept her aim upon Cal as she advanced on him. Sometimes we're tested, but when we fail, it means we learn. Goodbye, Cal. He watched her switch hands to grip the magazine so that her trigger finger could rest upon the M203 grenade launcher trigger. She fired. Cal threw the nozzle of the AK-47 onto the rim of the truck bed and sprayed in her general direction before the M233 round landed directly in the bed of the truck. Cal was launched backward across the street into a parked van. He pushed himself up, his ears ringing painfully. He had taken so many concussive shocks to his system that his eyes dizzily darted around in their sockets. His whole body ached as he rolled around on the asphalt, unable to suck air into his lungs from the pain. The figure of Kashi appeared over him. The sleeve of her blouse was red where he had inflicted at least a little bit of damage upon her. But even through her pain, she slowly unlaced the AR-15 from her chest. She was like a demon, her black eyes never leaving Cal's as he writhed painfully beneath his broken ribs. Hyun withdrew her Beretta 71 22 pistol, thumbed the hammer, and Cal's pain disappeared in a world of black. As much as Hyun wanted to prove a point, she had done so with devastating skill. It felt like more time had passed, but everything happened within about six minutes. She could hear the sirens in the distance. People everywhere were coming out of their houses with their phones raised to film the destruction. Hyun's mission now was to escape. She grabbed her AR and retreated from the street back to the side of the house. Plucking the wind mag from where she'd left it on the back steps, she hurried back down the grassy path to her motorboat. Clambering inside, she replaced the magazine on her wind mag to check and make sure no one on the property had followed her. Eerie quiet filled the rubble from the building she and Bomber had single-handedly leveled. Kicking the motor of her boat back to life, he unaimed the boat north toward Collins Avenue Bridge. Hundreds of vacationers and sailboaters passed her as she directed the boat away from the city. 
Her heart began to beat in her chest as she passed into the Atlantic Ocean and headed southwest. There's a creepy feeling, leaving the safety of the mainland and heading into the nebulous ocean, but Hyun wasn't worried. In six hours, she would reach the Bahamas. She would be out of American territory, so even if they knew who she was, finding her now would be extraordinarily difficult. As she sat in the motorboat with her guns and peanut butter sandwiches, she took the time to examine her current situation. The job was done. All of the American-based family members had been eliminated, leaving only three others throughout the world. And then there was Muna. Cal had known she was coming for him, but Muna was not an arrogant fool. He knew he could not buy his way to victory. Once the last three appendages had been removed, Muna would likely go into hiding. That was fine. Hyun smiled as she glanced to the sun fading behind the Miami buildings to the west. If he wanted to play games, they would do just that. The world is a big place to play hide-and-seek, but it's also almost impossible to disappear. He could hide, but the moment he peered out to check his steps, that's when she'd be waiting for him. It would not end until all of the family were removed. She would prove that they had made a grave error in sentencing her to death if it was the very last thing she did. This is another of those stories that sat in my brain for years before I actually committed to it as an episode. I have about three parts planned for it so far, at least for this current leg of the plot. We learn more about Hyun's past and why she's so dangerously cunning in the next story. Depending on how this episode is received, we'll gauge whether or not we see a second part in the season, but we have some big shows first that need to be checked off the list. It's so funny, I have the Dreadnought audiobook in its final stages. It just needs a final run-through and edit, then it'll be ready for release. There's a chance it'll be ready before the next episode, but we'll see. I'm working on another Richter episode for you guys, but Jonathan will be making an appearance first so that this other storyline that needs to be introduced can get going. You know, all these episodes and books seem random to you guys, but in hindsight, you'll see that all of this has been pre-planned. All of it has been brought together for a real purpose. Think about that. Think about our good friend Elgar King. Then think about what the name EK Publishing Media actually means. There's something deeper going on, and it has everything to do with this broken, simulated reality you and I live within. I sincerely hope you enjoyed this episode. Drop me a line on social if you did enjoy it. Until next time. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast was written, voiced, and produced by Benjamin Allen. Please throw us a good review or tell a friend about our podcast if you enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to give us feedback, please contact us through our website at ekpublishingmedia.com. Visit ekpublishingmedia.com for more information about this podcast and other stories as well. Thanks for listening. David Grayson waited in the interrogation room for a long time. After at least 45 minutes of waiting, Agent Wilson Himes entered the room with a banker box full of files that was so heavy it required both hands to carry. He placed the box on the edge of the metal table and took the folder off the top. Himes placed the folder on the desk and then pulled his seat back while unbuttoning his suit jacket. He took the time to remove his jacket respectfully so as to avoid wrinkling it. David watched him walk to the interrogation room door. 
He took a plastic hanger off the hook on the back of the door and fitted his jacket upon its frame. Placing the hanger and jacket on the back of the hook, Himes returned to the table and sat down. He took a deep breath, placed his hand upon the folder, and looked at David from the tops of his blue eyes. Mr. Grayson, my name is Agent Wilson Himes, and I'd like to ask you a few questions about your wife. David nodded, looking between the folder and Himes. First of all, do you have any idea where your wife, Hyun Grayson, is located? If she's not at our house, then no, I do not, David answered. Are you aware that making a false statement to a federal agent is a crime? Himes asked. I can imagine it is, David said. So, you don't know any place your spouse might have gone in lieu of some traumatic or stressful event? Like I said, if not our house, then I do not know, David said. Your house will be a new house before anyone lives in it again, and it's doubtful it will be you or your wife or son that lives there. The building is currently a smoking hole in the ground. David blinked, not understanding how in the world that was possible. Hyun just told me to go to a state park or the mountains for a week, then come back. I didn't know anything else that was happening after that. Agent Heim sighed. Look, I actually believe you, although in light of the circumstances, it's tough to believe you had no idea what she was doing. You didn't see any signs. Weaponry around the house. I mean, military-grade C4 explosives, large quantities of ammunition. Nothing, said David. I, I never saw anything like that in our house. I, I know C4 from, like, the movies and stuff, but I've never seen it in real life. In other words, you actually know nothing about your own wife. Heim spoke facetiously. I know she likes romance movies, makes her own kimchi at home, and hates almost everyone she encounters. I don't think she even likes me that much. But you know nothing about the hundreds of people she's murdered between 2005 and 2016. She set off a bomb in a university conservatory. David gaped at him. I don't believe that, nor do I believe it's possible. You're certain? Himes cocked his brow at David. My wife has never killed anyone. These accusations are baseless, David yelled. David, we have enough evidence of her goings-on that we thought it imperative to bring your family and your son to a safe house. He waved at the box. We have a mountain of evidence showing her involvement. Now, if you have any information, anything at all that might give us a clue to her whereabouts, it would be best for you to tell me right now. She's extraordinarily unhinged and dangerous at the moment. I've been in the FBI for 16 years, and I've never encountered someone like this before. My wife, began David, speaking slowly, Hyun Grayson sleeps 12 hours on the weekends and spends her time on her hands and knees picking up every particle of dust in our house when she's not taking care of our son. That is the only Hyun Grayson I know. I don't know who you're talking about, but it's not my wife. Himes picked up the folder and opened it so that only he could view its contents. He withdrew a photo and slid it across the table. Is this your wife? The picture showed none other than David's wife, Hyun Grayson, carrying an AR-15 with a grenade launcher attached to the barrel. She wore what looked like a school uniform with her hair in a hairband. It was a side of her that he had never witnessed. Where did you get this? David asked after a long silence. Security footage we recovered from a location that was struck by two military drones that your wife's accomplice hacked. David furrowed his brows. The guy. The guy? Himes crooked his head. The guy who had me draw French bulldogs. The Apocalypse Theater Podcast is an EK Publishing Media Production 2022.